Hello, CrossFade listeners. This is Matt. We'll get to the show in a second. I did want to start off by asking you to support a cause that uh, we here at the show feel very strongly about. And uh, I think as music listeners and music lovers that you probably do as well, uh, it's Save Our Stages. Um, you can go to saveourstages.com. It's basically uh, just addressing the issues that, that all independent music venues in America and really across the world are facing with the advent of COVID-19 and basically the current suspension of most, if not all, live music. Um, there's a lot of small venues, independent venues in this country that are really hurting. Their employees are really hurting. And that's why um, some Congress people have uh, started a bill called Save Our Stages, and that's to provide relief to these venues so hopefully they can make it through until we have a vaccine. And we can go back to seeing shows. Um, I mean, I don't have to tell you that, you know, I feel super strongly about this and, and independent music venues have played a, a, a huge role in my life. And basically, if you like any artist of any size, whether they play, you know, small clubs or arenas, at some point they played these clubs and um, they're hurting right now. So what you can do is go to SaveOurStages.com and you can uh, fill out an easy form that's going to send a automatic email to your uh, Congress people, depending on where you live. And you also can support there the uh, NEVA, which is the National Independent Venue Association Emergency Fund, which is also raising money to provide uh, funds to some of these venues that are being the hardest hit so they can hopefully make it through. Um, anyway, it's a great cause. SaveOurStages.com. And uh, I hope you I hope you can go there and uh, support some of the venues that you know are really the breeding grounds for the next generation of, of great music. So thank you very much. And uh, now without further ado, let's get on to the show. All right. Let's see what we're going to listen to from Matt. Got mail from Jason. We're going to see what John Drake has in store for me. David Bowie, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Dismemberment Plan. Change. I knew these guys. I saw them open for Jawbox, but one time, and they were good. I just don't... I was never, like, super into them, so I'm excited. This is a very exciting pick, because I have played a lot of Bowie in my life in cover bands. I am obsessed with a couple songs on this record, and I am very excited to dig into it as, like, an LP of its own, because I, you know not just shuffling through songs on Spotify or my iPod, but really just like digging into this, this record. Also iPod. What is it? 2007. Jesus. All right, let's do it. Let's get into it. Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson. Joined, as always, by Jason Daphnis, our producer and co-host. Hey, Jason. Hey, Matt. I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I know you didn't ask. <laughs> I, but I was going to. That's the important thing. Um, you know, it's that Minnesotan in me. It's it's like consciously <laughs> pushing for the annoying side of, uh, of not being threatening. Hey, you're one of us now. Um, and we are very happy to be joined by a special guest, John Drake. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you again. For uh, those that don't know, John uh, is currently uh, a, uh, a VP of games over at Disney, but um, I've known John for a long time and his uh, career in the video game industry and music kind of interact, um, which is why we kind of thought he'd be an awesome guest. John was at Harmonix and worked on the, on the rock band games back in the day uh, in the heyday of the rock band kind of era, which was an awesome time, I think, for both music and games. And uh also, a, a great musician in his own right uh, was in a, a, a band uh, in the 2000s called The, the Main Drag, who uh, was really good. And I was actually just thinking, John, I remember you guys came through town that one time 
Um, was that the fine line? Yeah, it was the fine line. That was a fun show. Yeah, that was. It was. I actually was. I fell down an internet hole and like I found a video that Nick Aaron's Game Informer's original uh, video editor did for you guys. Yeah, he shot a bunch of footage at that show. It was, it was a good Game Informer community of I think we had come through like two months before to show. I want to say Rock Band Two it might have been Beatles Rock Band. We were in town and we were hanging out with everybody, and I was like, "Oh, we're coming back through on tour in you know two or three months in the summer." Um, and everyone was nice enough to come out and we got some drinks and Nick shot a weird stop motion video that we, you know, we knew he was yeah. shooting. We were very appreciative. He was doing it, but he was just like, I just want to make a video. I like the song a lot. And we were like, okay, cause we're broke. And so we will happily take your <laughs> free music video. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's still on Vimeo. You can watch it today. Yeah. Um, but so I, I guess, you know, obviously you have a, a long background. John also did time at Sony as well. Um, but I wanted to, uh, <laughs> What's that? It just sounds like it sounds like I was like uh, like Chino. Like it sounds like prison. Like oh, I did, I did, I did, a, I did a nickel at Sony running yeah, third party he, business. He flipped on everyone and they I let did. him go. Um, <laughs> no, but I guess I wanted to talk to you more, uh, you know, about your, your musician side and a little bit about you know the main drag, how you kind of got into to music and, and and playing. Yeah, I mean, I I was raised playing music. I was playing you know piano and cello and a bunch of instruments at a pretty young age i think around uh seven or eight we started taking lessons on uh on keyboard and piano and then got a drum set around the age of 10 and never stopped and started playing out a lot so i am a classically trained percussionist and i used to play four mallet marimba and timpani and all the other good stuff in symphony orchestras and you know put a tuxedo on every two or three weeks and play a play a symphony of some kind and wow i didn't know that yeah and and through that i got involved in a group in chicago that also had a a jazz group where they would you know they did some big band stuff but they were really focused on combo jazz and it's like this weird area that you don't usually get into as a kid but i was i was playing combo jazz drums from the age of 13 or 14 and combo jazz is like you know it's four or five six people you know bass keyboard drums and some horns and you play off of a lead sheet, right? You got a, a real book or a fake book in front of you and you p- sort of play the melody and then you solo and trade around and we would play cocktail parties. And so I had a group of about 20 people who were in a similar age demo that we would go out and we'd play, you know, people would pay us a couple hundred bucks a night to go play a cocktail party and um, went on tour to Scotland with that crew and uh, got to play around the world. It was sort of, you know, notable to be like a bunch of 16 year olds playing like really aggressive bebop. Um, but also able to mitigate that down to be like in the background at a golf course if we need to, you know, make a couple hundred bucks to pay for our gas money. Um, That's awesome. So I did that for a while. And then I went to school and at school, I joined a band called Blanks, which has appeared at the end of it to differentiate it from uh, apparently an acapella group featuring Ted from Scrubs. It's also named Blanks, which I did not know at the time, <laughs> who are wow. also very good, by the way. Um, uh, but yeah, we were in a sort of a post-punk band. We met the first week of college and sort of uh, we had been chatting on a message board before we got there um, and bonded over a mutual love of Prince. And actually, the end of our freshman week, we played on stage. Um, I went to Harvard and it's this a 400, you know, I guess it's 300 year old sort of square in front of the church called Tercentenary Theater. And we played When Doves Cry, having known each other for three days for an audience of about a thousand people. Um, wow. And it was apparently pretty good and people liked it. And so we were in a post-punk band for three or four years. Um you know, recorded a couple records, uh, started a recording studio in Boston, and then went from there to harmonics, where I think we had all kind of like, I took a year off uh, after school to book shows and book clubs around Boston. Um, and my bandmates had taken their senior year off where we had matched up to sort of a four, sort of a five year period together so we could make more records. Um, and we all ended up at harmonics because they had 
tour leave and it was all a bunch of other musicians we knew. And I actually got recruited in there because I was known for being one of the loudest drummers in Boston. And it was a, a moment where I was like, oh, did you mean best? And they were like, no, we said loudest. <laughs> just, you're hey. real aggressive and you we think you're going to break these uh, these temporary drum peripherals faster than the average bear. So I got to hang out with them and just kind of they paid me and Diet Coke and pizza to test their stuff while I was booking shows and working for a college in Boston. And then at the end of that process, um, I got offered a job there. And uh, the main drag sort of sprung out of there, like Adam Arigo, who now runs a company called The Wave VR, um, which is one of those sort of virtual concert venues. It's probably one of the most notable ones for VR and, and also for flat. I think like they did a concert with The Weeknd recently. It's a really cool company. But he was wow. uh, he was a student at Tufts. He actually produced our record for the Blanks, and he had a band called The Main Drag. So I'm actually not on that first record that they did together. Um, but people in his band were leaving town and graduating. It was sort of his vanity project, sort of solo project name. Um, and we slowly, he, as he was producing The Blanks record, we all kind of joined his band one by one until we were all kind of a super group. And then all of us, except for our bass player, ended up working at Harmonix at the same time. So uh, like 80% of the band was at Harmonix. So, and three of us lived together. Um, I guess four of us lived together. So we were Damn. pretty much around each other, uh, you know, a hundred percent of the time for a solid two years and made a couple of good records that I was really proud of and put those songs in a rock band and toured behind them. And then slowly, you know, two of the guys now work at the way VR. Dan is still in Boston producing records in dimension sound studios, which is a, a record, uh, a recording shop that we helped set up. Uh, and then Matt, our, uh, lead singer is now a, professor at NYU in game design and Adam and John work at the wave. So we've kind of gone to our separate corners of the universe, but very amicably and everyone's still kind of working in media of some kind, which is pretty rad. That's awesome. Do you still play it all anymore? Uh, I do a little bit. I played in some sort of cover bands and messed around a little bit when I was living in San Francisco. Now that I moved to LA, um, you know, I had a couple drum sets. My wife finally convinced me to set my kit up in this uh, sort of recording studio she uses for her podcast and gaming show that she does. Um, so I come out here once in a while and put on really loud headphones and just play along with music that I really like or music that I recorded on before or play some jazz, but, um, don't play out anymore with people just haven't uh, really found a group I want to play with. And in yeah. the COVID times, not the best time to go like jam in a yeah. closed environment and sweat <laughs> a lot. And I, I, I tend to breathe yeah. pretty heavy when I play. So, yeah, it is funny though. I always, I always felt like, you know, just in the game industry, it was interesting to me how many people, you know, I mean, really, I'm the only reason I was a game informer is because I was in a band with Andy Magnum. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, there, I, I, I came across that so many times, you know what I mean? From tons of people I met had, had, had backgrounds in bands. I thought it was kind of interesting how those two industries kind of informed each other. And obviously harmonics being like the most closely fused, you know, of any of those companies who actually, you know, are, are still doing well with Fuser today. So um, that's cool. I, I, as a player, um, and maybe we can kind of dovetail this into the, to your selection, uh, which is a dismemberment plan change. Um, you know, I remember remember uh, seeing you guys, the main drag, and you guys were cool because it was it was definitely kind of an indie pop thing, but there was definitely a lot more kind of chops going on mm -hmm. and and kind of tricky, almost math rocky kind of stuff going on within a very kind of poppy thing. And um, I don't know if you know. On the record, we're about to hear there's a there's a ton of really amazing drumming actually. Yeah. Um, but talk a little bit about some of your in influences in, in that respect. So I I found this record when I was in high school, and I think it was sort of the proto, um, ha knowing the cool thing that people didn't know moment. Right, like like you know hipsterdom was not really a thing when I was in high school, but just that that world of like oh I know you know I know this beta band record you haven't heard that then you don't really know music right like that kind of high fidelity yeah. bullshit yeah um beta band. and so this was a you know a little bit of a deep pull at the time but 
it was one of those records that I I just saw on some recommended list and listened to one track and just bought the CD because at the time that's how you consume music. Um, and I just weirdly fell in love with it. I don't know that it's like good throughout end to end. Like I think there's some really weak spots in the record, but to your point, like the drumming on this record was pretty formative to me being in a sort of gang of four post-punk band of my own, like going into college of just, you know, I don't want to even, I don't want to, I think I was probably too busy of a player when I first started playing in that band, but just like very busy, but very tight drumming and especially drum and bass work where it's really, you know, really locked in really smart. And then was lucky enough to find a guitar player and other people who liked, you know, bands like that and bands at the time when I was in college of like, you know, Coheed and Cambria, things like that, where, they they were kind of in that slightly math rocky, slightly punk uh, vibe, and I think this is the you know early two thousands version of that. But I mean, a lot of the the clips, I was like, we need to I need to listen to this song over and over again. It's just like a lot of the first like fifteen seconds of these songs are just punishingly good drum intros or drum and bass intros that are really yeah. really well played. And you know, and this band is also from you know they're from Wisconsin, I I believe. So they were kind of a midwestern band. I grew up in Chicago. Um, and it has a very sort of Midwestern aesthetic. Uh, thinking about these two records this week of like the Bowie record we're going to talk about is like full of sort of overconfidence. And the dismemberment plan to me is like the lyrics are a guy just second guessing himself constantly, just the Midwestern style of, you know, I know you didn't ask how I am, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because I just want to have a, a good <laughs> conversation that we that Jason referenced at the top of the call. Um, so I, I really like this record a lot. I think it's got some really hooky melodies and it, it weirdly grew on me over probably a year or two of just driving around, you know, late at night coming back from a show or whatever, and just listening to this to stay awake in a car. It, it it's kind of, you know, burrowed its way into my brain. So it's, it feels very familial though. I don't know that I recommend it as like, these are some tight pop songs. You're going to totally sing to yourself. It takes, you know, a couple yeah. dozen hours of listening to really get into it. Yeah, so I want to correct myself from the intro where we, we you know, we kind of gave Jason our recordings because I, I saw Dismemberment Plan. On the intro, I think I said I saw him open for Jawbox, but that was untrue because I looked it up. I saw him in 99 open for Burning Airlines, which was Jay wow. Robbins of um, – Yeah, I know. I didn't realize – It's like, a deep pull. I know. Me and me and Andy McNamara were huge Burning Airlines and Jawbox fans. And obviously, it's kind of appropriate because Jay Robbins produced this record and I think yep. most of the Dismemberment Plan stuff. Um, and Jawbox, obviously, just being one of the you know kind of, I think, most important American you know post-punk bands. Um, but yeah, so I, m- I remember not knowing him and kind of going to the shows at the University of Minnesota. I looked it up online and uh, yeah, I was like, I mean, they had a ton of energy and this was, but that band was definitely different than this record. I mean, that was yeah. probably, I guess, touring on the first record at that point. And it was way more kind of spastic and like crazy. And I remember kind of being, you know, you know, it's like your opening band. I was kind of waiting for Burning Airlines, but I just sort of remembered like the energy of the band was like, damn, like these guys are. <laughs> like they're out there they were really energetic and crazy so well and, I, um, and like coming back to that you know like not to tie it to my background or whatever but like the the jazz stuff that i did so much of that work when you're in a little you know six person group and and i think it was really formative to making music is you learn i mean it's very cliche you know the miles davis like you listen to the notes they're not playing but the you know but you learn to listen to what people are doing and try to you know ape their phrases and i think that what i was taught at a really at a younger age than most people kind of come to it because you're usually you know when you're 14 you're playing Tom Petty covers and just trying to like not script the power chords, but the, uh, you know, was, was taught to like, Oh, you can be musical on the drums. You can be melodic on the bass. Like you should be hearing what the saxophone player is doing and doing what he's doing and, you know, having some fun call and response. And I mean, I think that that's actually really foundational to where things that have sort of prog and mathy influences go is all these things have to lock into each other and they have to be really 
well wound. And it's not just that you are looking to hear a cool melody and then play a harmony to that melody, which is part of it. But it's also just like the idea of how you compliment, how you lock that stuff in. And to me, this, this band just feels very locked in with like what they're trying to accomplish on any track. Um, and that to me feels really fun to listen to. Like, I don't know if it always, again, I don't think it always makes the best, you know, hooks and melodies, but it makes really sort of layered, interesting music to, to pick apart. And even listening to this again this week, and I've probably listened to this record a, you know, a few hundred times over my life, but you know, I would hear things and be like, I never even heard this keyboard part. Cause there's so much going on ahead of it. But now that I'm listening to it again, I'm here still hearing new things, you know, 20 years later or whatever it is at this point, which now that I said it out loud, makes me feel very old. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time ago. Let's, we let, let's listen to some, I think, you know, sentimental man's the first track. And I think this, you know, definitely sets this record up musically very well. And I, I like this song a lot and, you know, you kind of get a, a very good sense of what it's about. I never really thought about jazz until you mentioned it, but they do have that kind of like very busy, you know, rhythm section yep. with kind of like cloudy, kind of jazzy chords over it, kind of suspended over it in a way, which is yeah. They don't have a piano-like. ton of. It's not like a ton of rhythm guitar. It's it's a lot of like you know. There's a lot of just bass and drums are the foundation under everything else that's going on, and everything else is somewhat sparse, right? Um, and then of course, once in a while, the guitar goes crazy, and then it gets really complicated, but. Uh, yeah, I also love like the sort of swirling, quiet background noise that's just like underneath everything, a weird sort of synth pad. It does feel like very conversational, right? Like it's it's very little. It's it's sort of looping and lunging back and forth right it's it's very urgent but the lyrics are very lyrics and the melody of the vocals are very like chill and so you get in this world where everything feels like it's talking to something else nothing feels like it's just kind of happening out in a corner and and that feels but it still feels lively it doesn't feel like super scripted and we'll get to some of the you know symphonic arrangements in the other record but um it doesn't feel glamorous but it feels very sort of conversational with itself which i i really like yeah no i mean it, they're kind of yeah, kind of wandering quality to like the vocals, I think, you yep. know, like he's kind of picking his way through these chord changes. But I really like this guy's like, I don't know what chord voicings or whatever, or if he's just making up chords, I'm not sure. But I love I love the guitar in this record. Yeah, there's the tones also really interesting, like and there's some really interesting bass tone on this record, too. of just like they go from song to song and, and you know, he manages to not just make it another guitar part or another you know set of power chords it always feels like it has a sort of a jazzy you know suspended chord kind of feel to it um and having seen him play live i saw them out in la i think it was three years ago or four years ago um on their on their one of their last tours and you know they it's a four-piece band and they pull the stuff off live and it's like i would not think he would be able to play and sing that or the drummer would be able to go for a solid hour straight playing at some of this pace but they they're rock solid man i really like them a lot yeah. Yeah, actually I looked it up and Travis Morrison's like some director of digital for like BuzzFeed or something now. That checks out. <laughs> yeah. I love this part. Alright. 
for um, sure. Jason, I wanted to move to a different track, and this is part of the song "Come Home." And you kind of touched on the fact that you know there are parts of this that get a little bit more animated. And I think Jason is like three sixteen of "Come Home," uh, which I think they get a little more yeah, driving. The outro of that song. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. feels like it'd be awesome in concert yeah it's also like this song is like the fifth or fifth or sixth song on the record and like and it's weird to call out like the actual beats but like it's one of the first times they're all just kind of like playing driving snare on two and four you know eighth note bass line like powering through it like the whole record kind of builds up to this point this payoff is like this very straight ahead rock song for a minute and a half and it's really powerful Yeah, now it's back to the kind of more the yeah. tricky stuff. But yeah, they don't do a lot of just kind of that like straight four four, like driving kind of thing. No, and, and like that's actually part of what what I fell in love with the drums in this record is there's a lot of like hitting on the one, a lot of like off offline crashes and stuff that are like they're very musical. They don't feel like random, but it's just, there's not a lot of the sort of you know like I love the Beatles, I love David Bowie. That those drum parts are very sort of straight ahead four on the floor. There's weirdness in some songs, but this is so syncopated and so layered and that it, it kind of weirdly builds to a point where when it does lock into sort of the traditional rock drums, you're like, it, it just feels even more like a sort of a kick in the ass to, to get up and jump around. Yeah, no, the, the, the way that they like maintain a lot of space and, and do a cool job of kind of layering. Um, there was another song that, that I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, but we can come back, but there's this one song, it's superpowers and like, one thing that occurred to me when I was listening to it is that some of this it's almost like structured like um like electronic music, like dance mm-hmm. music. Like they'll kind of add they'll have a the bass rhythm and then like at a certain point they'll add like another layer to it, like a little repeating thing. And I thought like Jason, you start around like forty seconds into superpowers, and then there's like another thing at like one fifty. It's it's kinda cool how they like layer these tracks up and down, I think. And it all it in a way that almost reminds me more like how instead of a rock band, how maybe like an electronic producer would kind of, you know, kind of build a track up. Yeah. If we're dropping in around it. 40, it's like the entire first verse has gone by and you don't even really notice it because it's so thick, but the bass isn't, hasn't even played a note yet or right around like 43 or 44. And suddenly like the bass kicks in. You're like, Oh man, I, it's like when Doug, yes. you're like, there's no bass in this song. I didn't even notice. And now it kicks in. You're like, Oh hell, this is even, even more thick than I thought it was, which is great. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, this is like Dub's Cry. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? How like an electronic guy kind of drops in a, a, like a, a track to kind yep. of keep the crowd 
I love I, and I love that the bass line drops in and it's not just like big whole notes on the on the downbeat. It's like he's playing this interesting polyrhythm on top of the drums and the guitar that have been playing the whole time. And you're like, oh, I didn't even realize there was space to fill there. And he's not even filling it with what you'd think. He's filling it with like something even more interesting. And then, of course, it you know starts powering through and becomes a bigger and bigger song. And that's where, you know, the bass drops down an octave and gets a little more intense. sad to listen to this and realize how many of these beats I definitely stole for main drag records. <laughs> hey, that's what it's all about. Yeah. You get by with it. But I love that look. This is very kind of dancey too, that little guitar yeah. part. Very like talking heads. Sort of yeah, track, totally. I'm glad you brought up talking heads because this album reminded me so many times of t- talking heads is and particularly Tina Weymouth's bass playing. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much great, like you said, syncopated beats and uh, polyrhythms and stuff that just, it gave me a completely different feeling for the album by the time I was done listening to it. 100%. Yeah, Jason, I'm curious your reaction because you know, this is probably not something you were super familiar with, or they're like this kind of scene of music. Uh, yeah, not not at all. Actually, I, I I knew of the band, but I never actually listened. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. It's I won't lie that the vocals are not something that I generally find myself drawn to. Right. But I and maybe John, you can talk to this a little bit. But like, I I guess the best example I can think of is. When I go to uh, Genius, excuse me, Genius for the lead song on this album, the Sentimental Man, um, somebody annotated this the opening lyric with uh, "Sentimental Man kicks off dismemberment plans change with its beautiful instrumentation and irritating vocals." Yep. <laughs> is is that is that somebody who's a fan of the band admitting that it, the vocals are a little bit irritating, or is it like is it? I guess what's the vibe among dismemberment plan fans? Is it like do they think of the vocals as a positive or just like? serviceable or there what is it i i don't i don't know i mean i this is i feel weirdly about it i think that i think there's a lot of bands that i have fallen in love with over the years where the vocals are very peculiar or particular um and i've like just but i've like listened to the song so many times that i just like don't even hear it anymore and someone be like that band's singer is kind of annoying you're like oh yeah i mean i guess i guess it is and i just like have gotten accustomed to it but i think I was reading some of the some articles, the interviews he did with Spin. I think he actually went through with Spin and like re-reviewed their catalog. The lead singer did, and he's like, "Yeah, I mean, like these vocals aren't good. Like I should have re-recorded them." And like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this mel- these, these lyrics are kind of like gibberish and chaos, and like you know, but it's a great arrangement. And so, like, it, it feels to me like they're very much going for a vibe. And I think the le- the vocals are expressive, and I think that they're mm-hmm. interesting. And when they're melodic, they're really good. It's just sometimes they're kind of a lot of pitch bending between notes and it can get a little grindy on your, on your ears. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely, I definitely understand that reaction. I don't think it's the most pleasant uh, vocal tone to listen to for hours and hours. Sure. I, I will say it's grown on me. Like it has become yeah. part of the music. It's not like I, you know, I'm always taken out of the song just because of the vocals, but I will definitely remember this album more for the interesting, interesting rhythms and yeah. some of the fun time signatures that they play with than the actual like melodies or lyrics. Interestingly, usually with vocal music, you think of those as the hooks as like the reason you'll remember it, the things right. that you'll be humming later. I don't think that's true of this album for me, but I did enjoy listening to the whole thing. However many times it did. Actually, I just thought about the, the scandalous uh, pitchfork review of Travis Morrison's first solo album. Do you remember that, John? I don't actually. He, he got, they gave it a 0.0. Jesus. Yeah, I think that was, like I read. I think that's one of the reasons he's like at BuzzFeed. I think he was kind of like 
fuck this. <laughs> Why am I even like, creating music for this? Yeah, yeah, totally. So they, they weren't into it, which is weird because this member plan, I think they were super into, but I guess they were just trying to be whatever. Uh, but uh, let's, uh, I'm going to play one more and then John, I'm going to kick it over to you for some of your phase. But I, um, you know, as a, I'm a bass player, so this was like, this album is, for a bass player, is like a real embarrassment of riches, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, Face of the Earth, I think, is like really funky. I love the initial groove on this uh, from the beginning, and and it, but yeah, like I just overall like this is such a great bass album. Like there's I remember, so many I wrote things. down my notes for the face of the earth says I cannot express how good the drums are on this fucking song is all I wrote for the first <laughs> bullet point. Yeah, this is really this is such a rhythm section album, and they're so good. Matt, you're better with instruments than I am. Is that a shamisen? I don't know. Could be. Yeah, I guess it you could know that, be. I thought about that like Asian instrument with the gigantic too, pick. You know? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yes, always. <laughs> that bass line. The bass line's also really good in the intro. It. Yeah. That's great. Matt, it's one of those songs that maybe like first time I heard it. Maybe pause the song and repeat and repeat until I could play it. <laughs> until I could play the bass line, just sitting there oh, like during it? work hours. Wow. Yeah, it's it's great. It's like during during work hours, hour. Jason. Yeah, scandalous. Uh oh. But just the big break and then it comes out on the two, so good. Around the end of one. Mm. Oh yeah, that kind of like a little reggae. Yes. Thing. I love that. And then the vocals come in and it gets a little weird. <laughs> I was, I didn't want to be mean, but like you do have almost a whole song there. Like yeah. if they just repeated that A B section, it would have been like a real solid song. And I don't mean to disparage his vocals again and again, but like it would have been a whole complete thing to me with just that first minute and ten seconds repeated. It's also just a really like this song is so weird because it's literally, I mean, you know, it's literally about like him dating somebody and then she literally gets torn off the face of the earth like a marionette like she gets ripped off the face of the earth in front of him and, and like ex- basically dies and explodes into space and he's like well i didn't really know her that well anyway like that's the conclusion yeah. is like <laughs> it's like that's a pretty a it's pretty fucked up to think that but <laughs> but it you know as, as you think back on like people you dated for 10 weeks at some point in your 20s or whatever it's like i don't know those people right like i might be friends with them on facebook or something and i I don't think ill of them, but I, I wouldn't know them, you know, in a lineup, really. I would recognize them, but I don't really know anything about their lives, and I didn't yeah. follow along. I just I find that really an interesting sort of moment of, like, huh, when you look back on people, you really just didn't form the bonds you thought you did. So, yeah. It's uh, uh, not it's actually n- not a metaphor at all. It just happens all the time in Wisconsin. People just get just get <laughs> sort of yeah. Fulton ballooned like it's Metal Gear off the face <laughs> of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, what are, I, I want to make sure that, you know, that we get to some of your favorites. Obviously, you picked this and, you know, what are some of any other songs you, that yeah, you had sc- notes on? I'm going through my notes really quickly just to make sure we get to good stuff because you hit a couple of the ones I really, really like a lot. Um, the, there's a, so just the opening of Automatic, um, which is a song later in the record, is, I think, a really interesting, like, amuse-bouche in the middle of the record. Like, it's, it's pretty different than everything else. 
but it has a very, it's like a weird seven, four acoustic riff, um, like finger picked riff that he's just doing for the whole time. And it doesn't really go anywhere. Amazing. Um, but it, it reminds me of this. So there's a bunch of weird comparisons here in a row, but I think of this record as having like incubus with less like weird fans, uh, vibes to it. Like a lot of the intricacies of that. And then weirdly, this song just reminds me of a song on bare naked ladies. Uh, maybe you should drive called am I the only one, which is this like very sort of looping wow. finger picking pattern. It's a very like, <clears throat> sort of sweet song in the middle of a, in that case, a very goofy record in this case, like sort of a very, you know, like proggy record. Um, I really just love that riff and the rest of this. I mean, you know, the first 25 seconds or so, the rest of the song is kind of not worth listening to. Real quick, though, I have to say, this is two shows in a row with a Bare Naked Ladies reference. Hell Jeff yeah. Cork did last week. We were talking about the worst band photos or album covers of oh, all time. There's some bad ones. <laughs> Event, eventually, Matt, we're just going to need to pivot into being either, uh, what is it, a foreigner band foreigner, or a foreigner podcast, or, yeah. a, a Doobie Brothers podcast, a Chapton Beefheart podcast. That checks out. I don't know if you need to pivot. I think you're already there. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Sign of quality. Well, I don't know what brings you around again. Yeah, so it's like, you know, it's a little it's a little sort of meditative. This song isn't really like every other song drops in some cacophonous you know full band lock-in this one's just sort of a weird sort of midpoint of the record you're about to flip it over kind of you know different vibe it reminds me of like oh it's it's the Ringo song right or it's the it's the one weird George meditative song um, that kind of breaks everything up Um, there's also a lot in this record where I feel like the connections between songs are really well done like a lot of overlapping similar keys or the ability to just kind of cover and fade from one song to the next um the uh the i'm trying to think of like which one's the most demonstrable if you go to if you go to following through which is actually the next song on the record um well first of all like the intro riff this is probably my favorite song on the record is following through um the intro riff i think is just incredible on all the parts and it's very well constructed for how busy it ends up being um but then there's an outro in this song that's just super weird sort of in the 345 mark or so which is a, a totally different song like a, kind of out of nowhere uh and then it just blends into the next song time bomb all sort of seamlessly so you, if you want to play like the first 30 seconds or so but then we should skip down to like yeah, that yeah. four minute mark i, I, had, I had both these songs in my notes as well yeah both these songs are very good takes so long but it's so tempting just to wait until the bass drops in which is after the whole first verse but it's so satisfying it could have been good it could have been something special it may have had real potential it never could show this one too has a pretty um, i think a more conventional vocal melody you know what yep. i mean like it's it's more of a almost like a pop punk kind of song you know mm-hmm. uh let's jump yeah do it
it's just come out of this like hugely cacophonous screaming second chorus and they just break everything down and then build it back up to this Latin jazz pop brushes on the cymbals kind of thing into a just thunderous guitar part from the next song. You you already talked about sort of how these guys have chops. Are the are these like jazz nerds who make this music? I don't know. I mean, the dude's got brushes in his drum bag. <laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was quite a few chopsy drummers back then, though. You know what I mean? I think in terms of this type of scene. Sorry, I just let it go into time bomb. If that's cool, no, that's that, good. That was this what I was great. saying. I love this man, song. like it's it's pretty harmonically relevant to the song before, so like the minor key relevant to what they were just playing. And oh, it's, just, it's such a different vibe as it goes from one to the next. But it like if you cut out the like minute or sort of like one and a half seconds of kind of quiet, it's like it's just a seamless mm-hmm. transition from one to the next. Um, which and then this the band being like, what if we all play all the notes all at once? <laughs> it's a nice change of pace huh yeah i do i really like the hi-hat tone on this record throughout also the hi-hat's like this is a really splashy one but it's just a really um really tight hi-hat oh i like getting that specific is that something you always listen for right here yeah oh god like the little tight like sort of choked hi-hat that he does is mm. really hard to mic and mix with it out being i mean it's hard to tell in, in the format that we're listening to it but like the without it being like overwhelmingly bright and sort of abrasive it's like a really well mixed mm-hmm. sort of funk hi-hat in a weird swirling metal prog rock track <laughs> so yeah that song's great and then you know i don't i think that like the only the only other song that i feel like is probably like it's probably good to call out is ellen and ben which is the last song yeah. on the track which i think is the other like pop song on this record yeah i was um, gonna bring this out uh, because it, it's such a, I think it's a it's a nice change of pace at the end of this album. And it, I mean, essentially the band kind of breaks up after this album. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, I don't know, it just seems like they're kind of, I don't know if they're anticipating breaking up or they're kind of couching it in like this story of a kind of a punk scene couple. Right. That's kind of fallen on hard times. But I, I did occur to me, and I, I was starting to think about this time period, um, you know, because, you know, this is like the early 2000s and... um they were definitely a big pitchfork band and things like that at that time. But, you know, they, they kind of were, I think dismemberment plan feels more like the end of the nineties than yep. like the beginning of the, the two thousands. And I was thinking about the bands, you know, like the, then the strokes and hives and vines and, you know, those type of bands were coming in and, you know, white stripes were getting really big. And it's kind of interesting because it, it's sort of like in retrospect, maybe, I mean, you know, the Strokes were a cool band and I liked the Strokes and everything, but it was kind of a retrenchment in some ways musically, mm-hmm. right? You know, like a lot of those bands, like, you know, were more retro in some ways. And I don't think they were really maybe trying to. And th- there were certain bands like TV on the radio, I think was a really great band of that era. And there's certain, and, you know, LCD sound system and stuff. Yeah, but it was kind of interesting. I think that like this, this idea of dismemberment plan and, and a lot of those, you know, bands like Jawbox kind of trying to push things structurally in rock, I think was sort of going away at that time yeah i would also i would also think that like and this song actually very hilariously dates itself lyrically it cites john mclaughlin it cites the phone book being the reason that they can't find this couple anymore and it's like i i think of there being sort of three phases around this time in my life where it was uh when the internet was pervasive when the internet became useful and then when smartphones made the internet sort of uh constant like in my hand all the time. And like, yeah, this is definitely after the internet was everywhere. Like you, you know, you would log onto your computer and you would read a blog or you would 
you know, rip some music or whatever. You know, I was I was sort of in my teenage years around this time, like a little a little before this time. But it was sort of pre the internet being like really well utility designed to be useful all the time. So it's like not that well organized and it was kind of chaotic. It was sort of post AOL, but pre, you know, Google restructuring everything in a in a format or Facebook restructuring everything in a format that you could digest. And it was definitely pre like smartphones being everywhere. So the idea of like, oh, we fell out of touch with this couple because we just like they moved and we don't know where they moved to. It's like, well, just text them. It's like, well, we couldn't because they didn't have cell phones. So we don't know what their new phone number is. So they're on their own. Um, but the there's a there's a very Midwestern post chorus at like 245, which specifically is like this. So the whole song is about him talking about this sort of indie twee scene couple that it has a very meet cute moment. And, you know, it's the very like it reminds me of an era in like high school and college where like you still had summertime, but you were definitely an adult. So it wasn't really summer break. Like you were supposed to get a job and do stuff like you weren't supposed to just like mess around and sort of those like hot nights where you go out and like they meet and it's kind of fun. And there's like a little romance, but do they know each other and they're smoking cigarettes on a balcony or whatever. Um, but then out of nowhere at 245, and it's sort of the end of the record. There's two back to back things where he starts singing about Briar's ice cream and building model airplanes when he was a kid and Briar's ice cream Briar's mint chip to me is very much like a, a Midwestern grocery store staple. Um, and then the outro is just him talking about like, I'm doing fine. Like he's just talking about you sort of like he's been writing you a lot. Like the whole record's yeah. been one long <laughs> yeah. letter that he's writing you. He's like, Oh, thanks for asking, by the way, I'm doing good. And I'm hanging with my nephew. You know how it goes. So call me whenever you get a big sense to it. But around yeah, 246, totally. it's a real like flashback uh sort of post-chorus vibe and it's still very very popular yeah. which i like a lot let's, yeah let's play a little bit from the beginning and then we can go to the end totally just to kind of set the the tail <laughs> in motion okay i'll start from the top and you guys just let me know when to jump Talking about the talking heads. Holy yeah. shit. They met someone's house warming party. They didn't like each other at first. But I was still there. Even as it gets into the second verse, like it adds a little bit more flavor, it adds a little bit more sort of thoughtful notes, right? There's another guitar arpeggio that drops in. There's these weird little sampler sound effects that are playing back. And they feel random, but then they're they're triggered at the same time every sixteen bars or so. So it's it's definitely like intentional. Just watching all the drunk folks find the taxis, cause all in all it wasn't good. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about this as a track that builds, but it super does, just intentionally, like you said, and slowly. Yep. There's a weird little trill sound effect. It's like the it's very mm-hmm. It's very fun, but very bizarre. Yeah. yeah. And it's very much a kind of a, a universal thing. I think if you're like, if you've ever been involved in a music scene, you know what I mean? That kind of there gets to a point. I don't know if that's people start reaching like 30 ish or something. And some people to start kind of, you know, the scene kind of falls apart. And those yep. people that you like saw all the time at shows and stuff, you just don't like see them as much anymore. Guys, we really just can't do this every night. Like, yeah. we're getting really <laughs> exactly. tired. If you want to jump to like 246, I feel like that's a little bit more of the different vibe, but I just really love his weird post chorus. 
I didn't catch the lyrics before, but that and a bowl of Briar's mint chip was life at its apex. At its apex. <laughs> this is yeah, what he sings. Exactly. That's a great, what a great line. Let's talk about like, I heard they broke up loud. Oh yeah. And then, and then of course the couple breaks up loudly at a wedding as in the, in the <laughs> outro. It's like, and you know, these people, right? Like it's, it's these people who are like very dramatic and fall loudly into love and loudly out of love. You're like, all right guys, whatever. I'm just trying to get to the death. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm staying busy. Hanging. There's also, there's a weird layer to this of like, I think very much of Ellen and Ben as they're described as being sort of a young, like young love, but in an old couple format, like they just kind of go off on their own and they're like doing old sort of, you know, they're sitting around reading the books and talking, doing the crossword and listening to NPR or whatever, even though they're in their 20s. And then I love at the end, he like sort of just becomes a grandpa where he's like, you know, back in my day, we built model airplanes. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I'm doing now? I'm hanging out with my nephew. I'm just trying to get through the day, man. We're all just in this together. Like, it just feels very, uh, like, it feels very like young people pretending to be old in a way that I find um, relatable and funny as I was like in my, you know, late 20s. And we were like, yeah, but we're working 80 hours a week at a video game company. And we're, you know, we're touring and we're in the scene, but I can't be on honeypump.net the boston music scene board all hours of the day i got <laughs> i got fucking work to do right it was like oh yeah did you guys have you guys had a, a scene board oh yes honey pump was our yeah. scene board they actually helped produce like release our first record with the blanks and you know my matt our our lead singer was like good friends with ben sister who ran that and we at one point played with his brother and another band for a little bit like it was yeah it was very like it was very sceny right it was like everyone's yeah, on there posting yeah. memes sort of before memes were a thing it was very weird yeah we had modern radio it Perfect. was called that was it was a local label that uh yeah anyway you know they, they were all the same kind of just bitching and you know infighting it was good yep. all right that, that, well i think uh this was fun i hadn't really uh listened to dismemberment plan forever and it sounds like jason you were you were digging what you heard i did i sure did after a short while you know like like john said it takes a few i don't know dozen hours <laughs> to really get into it but yeah some of it I would I would recommend, Jason. Some of it does well if you're and it's probably too cold where you are right now, but or it will be shortly, but like it does well for like driving with the windows down where the vocals are a little bit less sort of stereo and surround directly in your ears, but kind of mm. blown out to the universe. That like that's a, that's that. a good vibe for the stuff. It's good driving music to kind of pump up the jams. Yeah, I think the lead singer called it his night album, right? Again, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going off of like basic Wikipedia research, but like I, I don't even know what that means, but I think I believe him. <laughs> checks out it has a good night pot all right let's uh let's let's um change gears uh abruptly change gears uh to my pick which was uh an english singer songwriter of the early 70s by the name of david bowie you may have heard of his album ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars the rise and fall of ziggy stardust and spiders from mars um yeah i mean you know this is kind of like one of my very probably favorite albums um i'm 
it was kind of my intro to Bowie in, in certain ways, except for like, you know, when I was a kid, there was like Let's Dance and like they had that bad like Dancing in the Streets cover with Mick Jagger and stuff on MTV. But um, in terms of really getting into him, I don't know for both of you how much you guys are into Bowie, how much you guys knew about this album prior and kind of, you know, where where you stood on it. I mean, Bowie to me has been like it's one of the first like vinyl LPs that I owned uh, is this record. And we would play it a lot. It's one of the few records that my dad sort of picked out and was like, this is a good one. And like sort of just put on for me and my brother to listen to. Um, and then sort of a post, like what was music post Beatles world? Because uh, we were very like a house that was very like Motown and the Beatles was what we listened to most of the time. This was sort of like the amount of rock and roll that was still melodic still very structured still very pop but very you know like beginning to be proto-punk beginning to push into what you know as i then started listening to like lou reed and you know sort of expanding out into that universe a little bit more and and hearing the Mm -hmm. velvet underground that like bowie was sort of the gateway to that um and and the transition from like the elton john ridiculous pomp and circumstance into like that but with a cultural critique and sort of a focus on it that's that's a lot more poignant and and i don't know there's also just some like just dominant riffs on this track on these tracks that are like undeniable over the course of time right like the you know moon, be it moon age daydream or you know we'll listen to some of them i'm sure but uh and of course yeah. you know suffrage city and um it's it's great i also feel like this this is bowie's one of the few artists that i got really into for a while and then it became just sort of like i was you know sort of native in that language and it was sort of faded in the back of my mind and then in that rock band era it like he like surged weirdly all the way back to like the front of my attention. And I started listening to Bowie all the time again. Um, mostly because we were playing a lot of these songs every night on the road. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time studying it, but I, this is one of my favorite records. So I'm, I was really glad you chose it. Yeah. And I almost chose, I mean, cause you know, I'm a fucking asshole. So that I, I got more into like the weirder stuff and you know what I mean? Like the, you know, low and the Berlin records, but like, this is really what I fell in love with. You know, ultimately I might prefer like, I don't know, station to station now or something, but it's just such a strong like rock record. And yeah. um, the other thing, just for people, um, if you're not super familiar, uh, Jason and I were talking about this this week, but there is, you can find uh, it in parts on YouTube or you can find it, uh, you know, on streaming or, you know, bootleg it or whatever. But there is a, uh, a great concert film from this era, um, which Jason, I didn't know it was D.A. Pennenbaker, the famous documentarian that made it. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture, I think it's called. And it's actually fantastic. I don't think it has a Blu-ray release or any like Super HD release, but totally worth it wherever you can get it. Yeah. And I mean, and part of it's just the context of like the early, very early 70s when this is happening and like how striking this all is visually and like the persona that he came up with, well, you know, kind of this space rock kind of, you know, sexually ambiguous, androgynous, alien kind of guy. So like, if you like the music, it's worth seeing the visual aspect because Bowie's like an amazing live performer and just everything was very conceived, I think, as a package in terms of like how he dressed, the clothes they wore, you know, just the way he moved on stage and everything else. So it's it's worth it's worth checking that out. Um I mean I you know, we can we can start anywhere. This is to me a pretty flawless record. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, I don't know. John, what do you think? I mean, to me, I like so just one more point on the sort of record overall, as you were talking about sort of the theming and, and the character of Ziggy Stardust, that to me, this is, it's a weird exercise in sort of building a mythology. Cause a lot of these songs were written around the same time that hunky dory was written. Right. And they were sort of written to be like the live tracks. Cause they knew they were going to go out and tour it. And he was like, I want to make a show out of that. I want to make these songs playable live. And I think a lot of them 
work really well with his exact band arrangement. Um, but to me, a lot of this, I guess I was I, maybe I'm just in a contemplative mood and I don't spend a lot of time sitting quietly listening to music anymore because I have to be on Zoom calls all day because that's my life. But the like the record feels a lot a little to me like sort of the the late 20s or early 30s of your life when you start to finally kind of know who you are and what's cool about your life and you start to shape that. But it's almost all sort of a telling a story looking backwards. Like you asked me about my music background and I gave you like a tight two minute summary of like how I got from point A to point B. But along that way in the moment, like I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't know this person I'm going on a date with is my soulmate or if this job is, you know, going to save my career and make me sort of uh, well-known and, and notorious. And looking back, you sort of stitch it together. The idea that they wrote most of these songs kind of disjointedly and then he assembled them sort of after the fact into this arcing narrative um that mythologizes ziggy himself from sort of this like alien discovering love and becoming the planet to being a full sort of blown superstar sex god uh is pretty wild i I, like i just the idea that you could be that confident and sort of that genius to to build it um yeah i think there's also a lot of winking nods of like that exact confidence and sort of egotism and, and uh, you know, awareness is exactly what kind of destroys Ziggy himself. So I think it's a lot of Bowie saying, you know, before he goes to Aladdin saying sort of becomes a dark sort of corner of the world where he's, you know, talking about much more heavy topics. And then even beyond that to the records you were setting work, it's like, you know, pretty super dark and fatalistic, but that yeah. this is like that last celebration of like glam and pomp and circumstance and how ridiculous it is. But he knows that that's not where you know, he should be, he knows that he needs to be a little bit more grounded. And when watching a character that he creates get destroyed so that he can then move on from it. But also we still think of Bowie with like the lightning bolt and the red hair as being, you know, one of those iconic looks, right? It's, it's probably one of the great images. And it's kind of interesting too, is that, you know, I was thinking about it, like in retrospect, everything is inevitable, right? Like what happened is inevitable, but he, you know, at this point, he's kind of in, in not only inventing this character of a rock star, but he's kind of inventing himself because I mean, he's not incredibly successful up no. to this point. You know, like he had, he, I think if anything, he would have probably been looked, if this doesn't happen, he's probably considered kind of a one hit wonder in, mm-hmm. in, you know, 20 years that had that one song about Major Tom, yeah. the, the astronaut. You know what I mean? I know that mm-hmm. his albums had some success, but he certainly wasn't, you know, the David Bowie that we all grew up in is sort of this icon of rock and everything. Like he's really like, you know, he kind of faked it till he made it. You know what I mean? And, and he kind of became, you know, a rock star by pretending to be a rock star, which is kind of funny. So I don't know, maybe it's not the first song, but maybe we should start with the song Ziggy yeah. Stardust itself. Cause that's kind of like the, you know, the origin story, I guess. And probably one of the great rock riffs of all time. I think. True. Jamming good with weird and gilly And the spiders from Mars They played it left hand But made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang Screwed up eyes I mean, I think it's also like not to make it too much of the rock opera of what this record is, but it's also one of those things where it's so baked into our consciousness of like, just I sing along with a song and I don't even really think about the words that 
like diving into it, it's it's a song where like it's kind of everyone else singing about Ziggy and how he has lead vocalist syndrome and becomes kind of too big for the band and yeah, is totally. ruining everything. And then it's like kind of his bandmates talking shit about him for the entire song and threatening to like crush his hands and destroy him because he's the only one who can bring the fans in, but his ego is so large. Also, shout out just in general on this whole record, Mick Ronson, the guitar player, yeah, is just like such a good guitar tone. Like just the kids were just crass. He was the nice. And also, I think there's a lot of you know, and this is a theme with Bowie too. Is like you know, it's definitely like. I don't think the '60s necessarily ended, you know, in, at the dawn of like 1970, you know, and like this right. feels like something that's like not the '60s anymore. You know what I mean? Like it's it's darker and it's more kind of nihilistic and and you know, it doesn't feel hippie, even though it is kind of it's still very classic rock, but it doesn't feel like a hippie album at all. No, it feels like it it like digests and knows all of that sort of hippie dippy '60s pop music so well and is like sneering at it but is also so good at doing it that it's like it kind of feels reverent even as it's sort of mocking what that form was to be like oh I can do that better than you and transition from this track you know while telling a story about a space alien sort of you know uh, bisexual weird rock sex god into Suffragette City where it's like and now I'm going to do proto-punk and sort of take you to the 70s and just you know not even hesitate yeah exactly and you know also it's kind of a, a callback a little bit to like what the Beatles um, mm-hmm. when the Beatles originally did Sgt. Pepper it ended up being kind of this half ass thing yeah. you know where it was sort of a concept album sort of not but like I think the original idea that like John and Paul wanted is like we're really going to like do an album in character yep. is like you know and that's like you know a little help from my friends is kind of more in that zone and a few songs on that album are but they I don't think they really carried through with it but I mean that I'm sure obviously the Beatles were influenced on everyone and that probably is maybe where the germ of this idea went I guess we kind of touched a little bit on that kind of, you know, darkness and maybe nihilism. Let's, I wanted to play five years cause this, you know, definitely, so you know, starts, <laughs> starts this, you know, starts the album off with like the world's going to end in five years, which is, you know, didn't happen. It may, it may be true now, but it wasn't then. <laughs> um, so let's listen to five years. Cause this is obviously like, it sets a different tone for a record of this period. It's definitely not like peace and love. Many mothers sighing. News had just come over. We had five years left crying. News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying. Cried so much his face was wet. Then I knew. Was not lying. I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies. I saw boys, toys, electric irons, and TVs. 
There's a lot of really great string arrangements on this record, too. I think that's the part that feels the most glam, right? It feels less like the band doing one live take with a couple instruments and more like, hey, we went back and really made sure this felt symphonic and crazy and weird in certain parts, and I think that helps a lot. But this, I mean, this song starts with just that, like, very simple, very dry, faded-in drum beat, incredibly straightforward, comes with a little piano, right? And then, like, by the time you're getting to, like, him grappling with, like, how terrifying it is that everything's gonna be over in five years and he's just like screaming in full voice like about how it's all coming to the end uh and he's in a full meltdown mode the orchestra and the guitar starts swirling everything's really crazy by about four minutes and and then it fades back out until it's just that drum beat again like it, it's a weird like self-contained capsule in the middle of a record that is pretty well stitched together of like just setting mm-hmm. the stage uh almost as like a prologue in a musical or something like that it's it's like crazy convincing, right? Yeah. Like very lulls you in very simply and easily. Almost like, again, Hunky Dory, right? With the last album that came out before this, right? Yeah. Do I have my chronology right? Yes. Um, yeah. And like the intro to this song is a little bit more muted than a lot of that. But like in that tone, the piano, like simple guitar, simple drums. And then it ends up as this like total glam operatic piece by the end. I listened to this song probably you know, millions of times in my car back when I got the CD in like 2010. And I felt like we really were five years from the end of the world then. And now I listen to this song again and I'm like, yeah, now it feels like we're five years from the end of the world again. We'll We'll get there eventually, Jason. Don't worry. Always perpetually five years. Right there is where it could drop off, but instead he starts building even more and more. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, oh, we can, we can just... proceed to another verse, but nope, we're going to keep yelling five years over and over again about how crazy this is. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know who brought up theatrical, but like, it, there is definitely a show tune kind of aspect to it as well. You know, mm-hmm. like, he's a very theatrical performer, obviously, but... Well, it's a record sort of about performance and fame, right? So it doesn't, it's not surprising that it kind of all lines up nicely with, you know, like the idea of him being a big performer and him, him changing characters and him singing from different points of view. Um, but yeah, these orchestra arrangements here. And then just back to that drum beat. Yeah, it's a, such, I mean, yeah. They used to make records sound really good back then. It was like they knew what they were doing in the studio. Um, let's let's do a more rock one. You you mentioned it, um, John, and Moon Age Daydream, I think, is another highlight of this record. And it's a little more the kind of rock, almost kind of proto-punk, or the, you know, some of the influences on the, a lot of the people that would be the punk rockers of, like, you know, six, seven years down the line from this, um, I think we're all very influenced by Bowie and, and Moon Age Daydream, I think is just an amazing song, amazing rock song. I'm an alligator I'm a mama, papa coming for you I'm 
Also, like that guitar tone is so distinctive. Uh, the electric guitar tone, obviously not Bowie's like sort of acoustic background, but like, and it's you so sparing. Like you could play me that note, and I would know exactly what song this was from just like opening chord. Yeah. And then like it just kind of drops out for like like they know how powerful it is, and we have to hold off. We can't do it. We can't do it all the time. We have to like keep that guitar tone sparingly. It's going to dominate everything. Um. And then after yeah. this chorus, I mean, like I like we cannot let it be said how much this is like a very cool seventies. Pop, pop rock song, sort of punk, slight, slightly proto-punk song, the great guitar tone. And then after this chorus, there's just a flute and Barry sax unison bridge over syncopated drums for no reason. Like, I, it's like completely <laughs> unclear and it's yeah. so weird and I love it so much. Yeah. It is kind of a weird record though, um, you know, that now that you mentioned that, is that I guess you know, this is one of those records I've listened to so many times. I I, I, I can kind of listen to it without noticing it. But for this show, I tend to listen in sort of a different way because I'm sort of like taking notes and things. And like, it's a weird record in that when I think of this record, I think of it as more of like a really rocking, like heavy, yep. like kind of aggressive record. And it's really not. You know what yeah. I mean? With the exception, there are some exceptions, but I think there's just something about the sound of it or the the impact of it that feels heavier to you than. When you really listen to it, it's it, it's you know there are a lot of strings and like other ornamentation, and it's not it's not this like breakneck like punk rock record at all. No, and and I I think it's actually I mean like Starman's the next song on this on this record, right? And the riff is really the riff is really good when it finally drops in. But like I've played Starman in cover bands, and it's one of those things where like Bowie's personality and vibe and confidence sells it. To your point of like. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to disparage the Ramones, but like anyone can sing a Ramones song with the right sort of you know sneer and arched eyebrow and make it sound like a punk song. Singing yeah. the verse of Starman or singing most of Moon Age Daydream and not sounding like a f- absolute maniac who is just like <laughs> saying weird like nigh like you know like weirdly stretching out long lyrics and stuff. You just don't. It's it's floaty and sort of like poetic in a way that I think just it doesn't sound cool unless you are so confident. <laughs> that you are that good at rock and roll and that probably that good in bed to Bowie's credit that like, you know, that you can just like sing <laughs> yeah. that stuff and not worry about what anyone thinks of you. Yeah, no, not easy, to, not easy to cover in the same way that like Prince, I don't think is easy to cover for people right. either. Um, let's, uh, let's play Starman Cause this is, uh, my, my daughter's 10 and she, uh, this is one that she's been singing, which I always kind of find interesting, you know, just like, because she has no, uh, frame context. of reference for this yeah. at all or, or context culturally for it and this one really uh she's the chorus of this is just i you know it's like but it's really catchy chorus i could see why a kid would kind of embrace this one 
These verses are not singable by a cover band to sound cool. You sound like an idiot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. And you say this from experience. Yeah. Uh, uh, is that kind uh, of one of those things where you're in the middle of the song and you realize, like, this just isn't going well? We and, like, now this. we're in the middle of the song. Like, I know we're going to get to the chorus and it's going to be great, but until we get there, I'm going to feel super lame. Speaking of string arrangements, these are amazing on the yes. chorus here. Harmonies are great too, but then this the guitar riff in the post chorus right here. So good. And weirdly, like, I mean the you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack is like a lot of people would probably pick a different song as what like what defines that to them like whether it's coming at your love or whatever but like that post-chorus riff of starman of like yeah. this soaring strings over this like kind of 70s you know iconic solo is just like a really great 20 seconds of just space vibes it's awesome yeah i actually want to move to another star song this is kind of like i don't know if this is one of the songs people think of but i really like the song star on yeah. the second side um and there's like you guys both know music better than i do and I, there's a, like a little chord change thing that i i like in songs and this has it and um yeah i'll, I'll, I'll call it out it's sort of in the verse so this is getting a little bit more kind of like punk new wave yep that just kind of pounding like insistent thing oh yeah i mean it's it's Yes. But there's this little descending kind of chord change right here. Bum, bum, bum. I, I don't know. That gets me every time. That turn around. Yeah. yeah I, I want to say that's what, what the, the root to the six, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Hard to, it's hard to say while we're listening to the song. It's hard to like think abstractly. Yeah. I also love that the song is like very like self-aware about like the power of transformation. Like I'm going to decide to be a rock and roll star and it's constantly him joking about like, I could use the money also like, you know, like I just want to be rich and famous. Like I, you know, it's, it's about being cool and that's great too, but I I just really want to be rich and famous as he sort of becomes Ziggy Stardust. Um, Which, you know, was also a kind of a a thing that, you know, seems normal to us now. Yeah. I could do with the money. Well, it's, it's really funny because it's like we think of Bowie now and like he was rich and famous. And when he wrote these songs, he was like not rich and famous, right? Like it is in fact commentary on other people who were rich and famous. He was yeah. famous. I mean, he was definitely famous, but he was not like no, sort of juggernaut no, no. superstar that he was after this record. Yeah, I mean, I think he was like a cult artist at that yeah. point. And also like at this time too, like the early 70s still, you know, like there's a lot of like in the kind of hippie world, like even the idea of like saying I want to be rich was really frowned upon. You know, like yeah. there was all the, like those big free festivals and like. You know, sometimes like, you know, at the Isle of Wight, they broke down the fences because they didn't want to pay and stuff. So it was definitely kind of a post-hippie vibe as well. 
to me, this also this feels very much like the dance break where he's becoming Ziggy Stardust in the musical of this of the show. You know, it's like him running around and like he's changing outfits and he's about to be revealed or whatever, sort of going into hang on to yourself. And it's and then the end of it's almost this like emphatic slower outro. I could fall asleep at night as a rock and roll star. Yeah, I just love this song so much. Yeah, it's rad. I could fall in love all right as a rock and roll star. Yeah. <laughs> so anthemic. <laughs> yeah, just all of a sudden. Yeah. It's great. Well, just because we're like, I think it goes just right into it, but hang on to yourself to the next one. And that I think to your, to your point, Matt, is like the most proto-punk song on the record where it just feels like Lou Reed swagger talking verses over kind of like, you know, chugging. He's dropping the name of his band into the song. He's, you know, it's a f- sort of a fast bass line in the chorus. Um, it's not the song I think of the most, but like to me, the more I was listening to it last night, it, it feels like God Save the Queen, like a decade yeah, earlier yeah. but just a little cleaner like it feels like it is that sort of punk where you're like it, it's a driving ode to finally feeling famous and sleeping with groupies and becoming that star that he's talking about in star like if it wasn't for the acoustic guitar you could tell me this is a ramon song and i would believe it. yeah right? totally I mean, I, I don't actually think this song is like interesting enough to listen to the whole thing. But it's yeah, like, yeah, no, it's, no, it's good. But, but it's a good yeah. one to kind of like as a ref, as a as a transition between like this to me feels like the sort of the driving montage between Star as like I'm going to become yeah. a rock star and then Ziggy Stardust being the final reveal of him in like full mythos, full swing, and that's sort of what the the album order is at the end of the day. Yeah, I, and I want to play. A, I want to play Lady Stardust, and because well. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a part of this whole puzzle, and the three of us are certainly not the best three people to talk about this, probably. But um, I mean, there's definitely like the sexual ambiguity of of Ziggy as a character, and you know, I think how it's probably hard in in, in 2020 to understand how much impact that had for people. Yeah, just the sort of androgyny of him and. You know, just even like, and that's why I want to play Lady Stardust because I mean, even just you know the title Lady Stardust, you know that he's not necessarily, you know, male or female. Is he an alien or well, and that's you know, and bisexual? That's the, the play or, on the lyric, right? Is that like people laughed at his long black hair? Lady Stardust sang his songs of darkness. That like we're calling this character Lady Stardust. The implicit sort of gender bending, you know, yeah. sexual definition sort of not deterministic, but like the gender bending of like. It doesn't matter. He's loved by, or, you know, because it, it's referred to, the pronouns are referred to as he. So I'm going to say he when I'm talking about Lady yep. Stardust, but like he's referred to as loved by both men and women, right? Femme fatales are coming out. Boys are standing on their chairs. And it's just this like, this sort of universal gender of like, he's kind of, he's everything, right? He's not, he's mm-hmm. not trying to be one or the other. He's trying to be sort of all encompassing. Yeah. And Bowie himself, I think his famous quote in some interview, which he says was sort of tossed off, but he said, I'm gay and I always have been. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, 
it, it was super impactful, I think, for everything that came later in the 70s, you know, and a number of different things. And, and you know, it's probably like if you were, you know, a kid in, in 2020 that's 18, you know, you, you take a lot of things in a good way. That's that's awesome that you take those things for granted. But it's probably hard to, you know, maybe overstate the impact that, that stuff like this had back then. And it's also just a really well-written, like, kind of torch song, too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, how much personality to just pull a song like this off? It's just, as you were talking about, like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. This song doesn't feel like you could cover it either. No. I mean, I feel like there's probably some artists out there that could pull it off, but it's not a casual, let me just like, I'm a piano guy at a piano yeah. bar. I'm going to play this song. You're like, people don't know like, what to do with you. Yeah. Um, like maybe like Janelle Monet or somebody like that could sure. pull it off, but you'd have to have like a super voice, you know. And just the swagger. I mean, and it, yeah. it does also feel like this is really tied to like mark bolin from t-rex right like sort of the yes. the glam big long black hair and it sort of feels like it's kind of a joke at his expense but in like a appreciative way and that's you know i, I think it's to your point it can't be understated how much this is like a mass yeah. mar- an artist who's like accidentally mass market sort of taking a swing at being like this is fine and like this should be okay and i don't know you know no one should have any problems with this and this is what i want to be uh and that's you know at the time was sort of sort of unheard of which is great yeah no I, i'm glad you brought that up because i looked this up and like i looked it on wikipedia the original demo version was called he was all right uh parentheses a song for mark <laughs> so it was about originally about mark boland from t-rex who maybe isn't as well remembered as bowie now but at the time was maybe even more popular than bowie yeah. probably at this point um and he's a, kind of another icon of the kind of the glam rock movement and a great you know songwriter in his own right for sure I guess for sure, I don't know how much more we want to listen to. I definitely, before we leave, I wanted to listen to a song that had a tremendous impact on me because, you know, I kind of just, you know, grew up in the cornfields here in the Midwest and, you know, classic rock radio was kind of the thing. And every once in a while, like KQRS would play Suffragette City. It wasn't like, you know, a staple, like, you know, ZZ Top or something like that, but... Every once in a while, it was just one of those songs where, like, I remember hearing, like, Rock and Roll by the Velvet Underground every once in a while, too, and it would, those songs would just sort of, like, it was almost like a lightning bolt to me, like, how much this kind of stood out for some reason to me, and, like, I just, you know, Suffragette City to me is just, like, a, just an exhilarating, like, rock song, yes. and it's just, the energy of it, it just still, 
I don't think it's dimmed at all to me. And I, I remember the first time like, I remember hearing it as a kid and it just seemed so different, even though it's, you know, it is sort of just a rock song, but it, it felt, it felt different. I think from everything else I was kind of like hearing on, on like, you know, classic rock radio, like in the car with my parents or whatever. <laughs> bass tone is so bouncy and like yeah. fuzzy in just the perfect way and those kind of i don't know if they're horns or a synthesizer i can't tell that kind of like weird like i think it's a synthesizer there's also sort of like a sort of a, a harmonized what sounds like a moog in like the in the following the bass line sort of post uh when the piano comes back in um and it starts soloing sort of after after the second chorus also just like a really good classic guitar solo (laughs) yeah mick ronson's great Of course, like we're about to build up into the yeah, you the best fake out of all time. Yeah, where it breaks and then out of nowhere, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, comes back in, which is just so, so satisfying. Yeah, even as a kid, I was like, "What's suffragette? Like, what is it? I didn't know, like, what suffragettes even were. I was like, it just sounded cool to me." There's that. There's that. Oh yeah. Perfect. There you have it. I guess it. You know, it's also thinking about it from other parts of the other record or rest of this record it's like it doesn't go off the rails like five years right it ends very confidently it's like no they're they're going they're driving this is like this is a a very emphatic ending which is how potent compared to other parts of the song that kind of other parts of the record that kind of fade out or transition to something else and this is very much like a sort of celebratory end in a in a powerful way yeah i'm gonna bring up my only real quibble with this album and i it it's not even a bad song but i so It Ain't Easy is not mm-hmm. my favorite song. And it's the only song that it's a, actually a cover song, which I didn't yep. know until I looked it up. Ron Davis, yeah. It, it's like, it just, it's the only song that feels like kind of a stock 70s rock song to me. 
And the fact that he put that on there and then gave away all the young dudes to Mata Hoople. Yeah. It's like, I was like, man, can you imagine if all the young dudes, the Bowie version was in where It Ain't Easy was? I mean, that would just be like another like all time classic. It's just weird that he gave that song away because it, it just seemed to fit so well in this whole, you know, kind of like, I think it would fit in the concept too. You know what I mean? But I don't That's know. That's true. I mean, I like I like it ain't easy. I mean, it is it's definitely a cover, but I like it ain't easy almost as like a demonstration of like the other half of late 60s rock was like it was either super hippy dippy, right? Or was sort of like this proto pre-metal blues stuff, right? And I think it's Bowie showing off of like, hey, this will be good to play live. Uh, I can do a good job with this. It's sort of him like out Zeppelining Zeppelin a little bit, right? I mean, I, I don't think that's actually fair, but he's like, he's just doing Robert Plant for like half the song. Yeah, um, no, I mean, it, it just the only song that feels like more standard is, as you were kind of saying, you know, like of that time period, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I don't know anything else. We got, I don't know. We listened to most of it, I guess. But. I mean, I, the only song I think we, I mean, like there's Soul Love is a weird song of like, you know, a God learning about all the kinds of love. And then there's suddenly like a 16 bar rock section and then it just goes back to a sax solo. That's, that's a weird one. And then, you know, rock and roll suicide is, that's true. Yeah. We is should. like powerful. It's not like, I think a little like five years. It's not necessarily like the best listen. It's, and it's a little harder to talk. It's, it's much more of like a structural thing. Um, because it starts off very sort of quietly and plaintively. I feel like I feel like Rock and Roll Suicide's a really good preview yeah. of like where he's going with Aladdin Sane after this, after he's kind of killing Ziggy Stardust to be like, it's darker, it's heavier. Um, but it does feel uh like right around the the bridge at like 140, he starts sort of like plaintively, like kind of wailing at this person trying to be like, You're not alone and trying to keep them from yeah. like going off the edge. And I feel like the you're not alone piece is actually like the most raw that he gets on this like five years of him just screaming at the end of five years is one and the you're not alone piece is similarly raw but it feels a little bit more like plaintive and emotional a little bit less sort of chaotic and, and out of control and i feel like yeah you know, in the in the in the narrative right the inf- the infinites are tearing ziggy into pieces and you know sort of fulfilling the who saying you know i hope i die before i get old right like bowie's bowie's sort of saying like that's not right like if this consumes you you screwed up right like you you got too big of an ego and this performance isn't actually who you are. Like you, this should be destroyed. Like Ziggy is not who I am. I'm going to destroy that. I'm not alone. I'm going to go back out in the world and I'm going to, you know, sort of be someone else. And I think that the idea of like the shape shifting rock star is also like other than the Beatles, right. Who I think were, um, and I guess maybe Elvis to some degree, if you want to like, you know, call fat, you know, Hawaiian Elvis, a different, uh, era and sort of persona. Like, well, I mean, Bowie actually was, I think he was a big fan of Vegas. Elvis. Actually, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> like, he, like, I think he, I think he liked, I think he thought Vegas Elvis was like cooler because it I was bet, so like, I get that. Like the big band wrote, Elvis. Like, yeah. Like golden years was supposed to be, he, he tried to pitch that to Elvis and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> Amazing. To have yeah, the confidence but, to pitch Elvis on anything is, is yeah, yeah. Um, and, just, and I think you're, you're right too with where he goes after this. Cause like, you know, he definitely continues, you know, in the glam kind of thing, but the next couple albums, Aladdin Sane and especially Diamond Dogs are, are still based off this but they're they're also right. much darker um i think visions of like especially diamond dogs which you know as we know uh you brought up metal gear earlier um you know is uh he's a big fan of that um it was a much kind of more apocalyptic and kind of dark view of glam as well so maybe rock and roll suicide was kind of like the beginning of that so like when i was in when i was in college and for a couple of years after college i in addition to trying to you know make money by booking bands and touring which is not a great way to make like a great money. way to make money <laughs> yeah it, doesn't, it wasn't awesome um 
you know, and I was, and I was working for an institution that was booking bands and touring and stuff. So it was, it was a little bit, you know, I had, a, I had a slightly corporate job too, but the, I was also directing a lot of theater and like, it's obviously after it's inspired by this, but like I, so I, one of the shows I directed, I didn't, I didn't direct too many shows. I mostly, you know, music director helped out or produced or whatever, but the, I directed Rocky horror and then I music directed Hedwig and the angry inch and just the Hedwig stuff is so directly quoting so much of Ziggy and like Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust, like continuing for, you know, 30, 40 years in punk culture and in gender bending culture and in musical theater and all those things, like just the, the, the ways that it's echoed back and sort of called back in other, in other contexts is it's really, it's, it's, it's probably even more formative than it gets credit to. Cause I think it gets reduced pretty quickly to like a hot topic t-shirt of a dude with a lightning bolt across his face. But it's like, this is a really like, you know, this, this sort of springboards off of the storytelling that other people were doing in, in records and in narrative and, and then playing at characters and, and builds it into a, a whole world that, and again, I can't, I can't stress enough how crazy it is that it's sort of like stitched together after the fact, like this was not a scripted out record. Like we wrote a record that had a vague concept to it when we were in college. And even that was like, we, we had to give up. It was too hard to actually hold the concept together. And this is like a dude who casually sort of edits it backwards into a character and a whole story and a, you know, a world that's inspired operas and musical theaters and things to come afterwards. And it's just a, he's a crazy genius and it's, you know, yeah. the world's worse off for having lost it. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That was a tough one. But yeah, let's listen to Rock and Roll Suicide. Time takes a cigarette, puts it in your mouth. You pull on your finger. Then another finger, then cigarette The water wall is calling It lingers, then you forget Oh, 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 oh You're a rock and roll suicide You're too old to lose it That weird out-of-time sort of anxiety bass drum kicking in and then, you know the guitar enters a little early and it just feels very like, you know, watching yes. somebody kind of slowly break down as he's, and it's, he's so quiet after just singing Suffrage City and belting it out super hard. Even the guitar is a little queasy sounding. Like it's yep. got a slight tremolo on it. You're a rock and roll suicide. Shit break the snarling as you stumble across. Those horns. But the day breaks instead, so you hurry home. Don't let the sun blast your shadow. Don't let the milk float. The other spiders, but uh, Trevor Boulder, the bass guitarist, is actually a very tuneful and, and good bass player, which, not in a way that really calls attention to himself, but yeah. he's very melodic. You're watching yourself, but you're too And then this modulation, it feels almost like cabaret or something like it has a very like, you know, orchestral sort of German, German uh, yeah, cabaret like, feel uh, to it. Who's, who's the guy the Doors covered? Whiskey, uh, oh. Bertolt Brecht? Yeah. You're not alone!
Yeah, man. Speaking of Beatles, that's kind of very Beatles like yes. day of the life ending there. But well, what can you say? I mean, I figured you guys would like this, and I figured you knew it. But it's a, uh, uh, you know, what can you, you say? Were it's, right. it's a, absolutely, yeah, absolute classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me an excuse to go back to Bowie anytime. Yeah, no. It's not my first Bowie record, and I don't know if it's my favorite, but it is definitely like, <clears throat> excuse me, touchstone for not just like learning about the industry and learning about rock stardom and you know presentation of sexuality and gender and everything but like simply learning about music like it's it goes places and it's really interesting in its instrumentation and and like its arrangement but it is also just very playable music i think i mean i know you just talked john about how it's like impossible to cover these songs so i would never suggest actually doing that uh if you can avoid it but like just being able to sit down and learn the music it was it was pretty big for me for that too. yeah i mean it has that beatles quality where they're just very fundamentally well-written well-constructed mm-hmm. songs at the end of the day like even if you stripped away all the great things and, and all the amazing like imagery and mythology and lyrics like they're just well-written songs yeah. at the end of the day you know mm-hmm. well you get um, the sense that he was like you know he was composing a lot of that stuff he was telling even though, you know, his guitar player is incredible and sort of his deepest collaborator, he would like hum his solos to him sometimes and what he wanted him to play. Like he had a very strong vision for what he wanted it to be. And that level of confidence, I think, is uh, is something that even with rock stars, you know, high of their minds on drugs and believing that they're gods, like to, to have that level of confidence and that level of execution is still, you know, a level. It's a genius that you that you don't find in common people. And I think that he recognized it himself and sort of laughed at it and sort of pointed at it and, and joked about it, but also just clearly also landed every punch that he threw. Yeah, no, I, I mean, in a lot of ways too, and you mentioned them earlier, just when you're talking about your own, you know, kind of musical journey, but I mean, there are so many, I think, parallels between him and, him and Prince, even the, I mean, they, they kind of died yeah. around the same time. And I think they both invented themselves into these kind of amazing characters that almost, you know, became who they were and, and, and just, both of their, I think both of the both of those artists had that confidence that I think is just like beyond what you know, kind of a mortal, a mortal musician has, you know. Yeah. Well, and the ability um, to play all the instruments, the ability to sort of sit down and and think structurally about the songs, and I think that that amount of reinvention, the ability to have those images created and reflected in the songs that you're writing, and reflected in the tone of the songs that you're writing, and the melodies you're writing, and the lyrics. And to be able to be that good at making the songs also like super listenable and fun and engaging for like the random, you know, I think we think about it now as we consume media, you know, and we're, it was funny because we're talking about this a little bit with the dismemberment plan, but that, you know, we think about it like we're consuming media now, right? Like, like we're going to go look up everyone's bio on Wikipedia and learn all about them. But like when you had the liner notes in this record and maybe an interview in Rolling Stone to go off of, and maybe you got to see this person live, the idea that they could create these whole worlds, sort of whole cloth without the you know the message board stitching it together is yeah. is really incredible so absolutely cool um john we we'd love it if could you stick around for some community questions from our patreon subscribers awesome let's uh let's do it jason sure uh so our first question comes from michael lynch this came from a discussion we were have uh, had on the patreon post actually about how um it ain't easy is a cover of a ron davies song and was itself covered later but uh, Michael says, I love how Bowie's generation kept that 50s tradition of getting a hit off of a cover of a, like a two-year-old song. Um, and just, I guess, bringing up that concept. Do, do you think artists still do that? Why or why not? Is it more of like relegated to a viral video thing now? Like, 
you know, swing renditions of, of existing songs and just really good covers or like, where is that spirit gone? Is that completely gone now? I, I mean, I think you, I think it's actually, and again, like, you know, I don't know that I know any, any better than anyone else, but I, I would speculate that it's something along the lines of back in that era, songwriting was a sort of defined profession, right? That there were like, there were shops of people who are writing songs and, you know, sometimes you get someone like a Carol King who would sell a song to Aretha Franklin or Motown, and then she would become a solo artist on her own and, you know, like sort of be become famous singing her own song as a cover of the song everyone knew, but she wrote it in the first place. Um, and I think that the modern version of that is just that the songwriting sort of, and this is a weird phrase to use, the songwriting industrial complex, right, is is far more structured into just the first time you hear that song is someone who wrote a lead line and someone who produced a track being handed to a pop star. So you just, you just never hear the original to start with. And then I think the other component of that, to your point is, you know, I hear a lot of covers or remixes or samples that are in that sort of TikTok vibe or YouTube vibe of people become famous singing the popular song from a little bit ago or dropping that popular line from 10 years ago into a song today and (laughs) kind of sampling it. But like, I feel like the internet moves too fast, but like, you know, cover culture on YouTube, for example, is incredibly deep. And a bunch of people have become famous sort of off of, playing those things. I just think the idea of recording that music and releasing it both through how the law and, you know, finances around music and songwriting have worked and sort of the structure around ASCAP BMI and all those things makes it more of a fandom and a, and a way to become famous than a thing you're going to release commercially and become, you know, a juggernaut star because you're playing the same song someone did three years ago. Yeah. And to, you know, if you want to go back to the fifties, I mean, there's also maybe a, some, I don't know what you want to say, but less uh, admirable, things that, that that came about in terms of certainly with a lot of white artists, there was yeah. in the fifties and forties and up through the probably sixties, even, you know, there was a lot of black artists that were covered by white artists that frankly just got played because, you know, it was Elvis doing hound dog, right? Not yeah, straight Big up Mama appropriation, Thorne. right? You yeah. know what I mean? So like that was another, the kind of aspects of the industry and money and, and race kind of influenced, but you know, I mean, I still think there's a lot of, a, cool cover songs i do kind of wish though i do i do i do wish that like you know current artists would cover other current artists sometimes i think that could be interesting except unless it's like twee like ukulele covers of like rap yeah. songs like that can die but, 10 years but ago, i feel thankfully. like they i feel like i mean one of the spotify playlists i go to all the time when i'm working is just like acoustic covers where i want to hear things that are familiar but i don't want to hear them loudly i need to be able to focus on writing yep. an email or whatever i'm doing and i feel like that's still alive but i also feel like the 90s and 2000s sort of buried that with things like unplugged and things like you know live sessions and now spotify sessions where like that stuff's just built into oh it's radio one and they're gonna do at least two covers right and that's sort of part of it and it becomes almost programmatic and i feel like that that takes away the it it sort of returns it back to those 50s of like it almost becomes sort of corporatized and we're gonna do a cover because i mean people will click on this thing and they'll listen to us and we'll get some more uh and we appreciate that music but I think this Bowie era of it is like true appreciation, right? Like I think it, it's them going out of their way to say like, I really like the song and I want to, I want to make it part of my repertoire. And like, yep. I don't know that artists really have repertoire today. I, like I sort of feel like they just have the list of songs that the labels no. have, have gotten them to. And I mean, sorry, I don't want to get totally history lesson, but the other thing too is like, you know, if you, if you, almost any band from this era, um, no matter what it was, like I watched the ZZ top documentary on Netflix and like, all those bands, you know, ha- they, they played covers for like five years yeah. before they even got signed and really before they even started to like do their own music, which isn't just because now I think people just go right to the like, you know, making music, right? They don't really do the kind of like doing time because that cover band 
culture isn't really what it used to be. So right. that's probably part of it as well. All right. So our next question comes from Britton Roselle. I hope that I'm pronouncing both of your names correctly. Uh, who asks, do you have any favorite Bowie drop or use in a show, movie, etc.? Uh, mine might be five, excuse me, five years from the movie before I disappear because it soundtracks a dream sequence. Hmm. I, I have one. I don't get us going. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, to me, the kind of, um, uh, one that I initially thought it was a uh, life aquatic by sure. Wes Anderson, which had that awesome, uh, uh I think it's Seau, Seau Zorze. Um, the Brazilian bossa nova singer did a lot of Bowie covers, and they used. I think oh yeah, they used like they also used Bowie's versions of like Life on Mars and a couple other ones. But like, I just thought that was a really amazing soundtrack. And, and to speak of the cover thing, like that was a example I thought of covers that were really awesome and, and kind of turned you know turned it into that kind of almost like Girl from Ipanema kind of like acoustic like bossa nova thing uh, with Bowie material. And that, so I just thought that was a really cool. Um, I mean, Wes Anderson's kind of known for having really cool soundtracks and and well-selected stuff, and I thought that was that was a cool example of that. Doesn't doesn't that movie end with Queen Bitch? Yes, yeah, and there's like Life on Mars, Bowie's version is in there, um, but you know, there's also the, the covers as well, so it just kind of, it was pretty like a Bowie-centric kind of soundtrack. Yeah, I had I had two that popped in mind, one of which is not a real answer, but like his, his stint on Extras, the Ricky Gervais show, where he <laughs> improvises a song about the little fat man <laughs> fat at man. the bar making <laughs> fun so of Ricky good. Gervais is <laughs> the driest famous David Bowie of all time, just not breaking at all and just playing straight to like, I'm going to destroy Richard Gervais on camera. Uh, and that's incredible. It's obviously not a famous song. Um, I, there was a, I'm trying to think of the, the other one that was on my mind. It was, there's a scene in Mad Men where uh, they play space oddity. Um, and it's Don Draper, like leaving his life behind and like just divorcing himself from the earth. Uh and I, that one, that one, I remember like the imagery being really iconic, but I don't, I don't know the tone of it too much. But I, and then of course there's like Labyrinth, but that doesn't really count because it's yeah. David Bowie <laughs> writing music for the movie. So my daughter just watched Labyrinth like this past weekend. How did she do with it? It's a, it's a creepy didn't, movie, man. Uh, didn't know what to think of it. Yeah, some of that stuff's a little. <laughs> some of it had an age maybe so well. Oh, you know, this is kind of a cheat, but since John, you brought it up, is that um, he produced both these songs and I think helped write maybe to a certain degree both these songs. Um, and they're his close associates, but I always I always think of Train Spotting with the use of Lust for Life by Iggy sure. Pop, which Bowie produced, and also Perfect Day by Lou Reed off Transformer, which he also you know produced too. So you know it's kind of a tangential to Bowie, but those are you know those scenes to me are very iconic, and those songs are very iconic. Totally hard to screw up a scene if you put Bowie in it, honestly. Yeah. Um, Maxi Flores asks, how do you feel about your child growing up in a world of digital sound production versus a traditional physical instrument landscape? Um, he feels like a grumpy old man fighting against this new wave of music from Minecraft animation videos that his 10-year-old is into, and he's only 34 years old. I mean, I think he's right that he's being a grumpy old man. Um, <laughs> I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's, I don't know that I disagree with him that it's bad. Like, I think it's probably implicitly not great uh, in terms of the sound quality, but I, I don't know. I think that that's, I think that's every generation pushing to do something a little more interesting, different. I actually think that the universal availability and, and sort of accessibility of digital sound production and general DSPs. And, you know, though it's not a great, uh, not my favorite DAW, like, you know, even garage band being on everyone's Mac or iPad or whatever, just like that kids can hear something and try to remake it is really potent. 
I just think that most of the stuff you're doing is still aping traditional physical instruments, right? It's still like you're yeah. playing keyboard patches or you're playing, you know, electronic drums. It's still, it's still harkening back to it. I don't think anyone's going to ever lose it entirely because yeah. it still just doesn't sound as spacious and interesting. And I don't think we're ever going to get to the world where modeling that sound sounds as good as just making it in a cathedral or whatever. But um, I don't, I don't worry about it too much. I think it's, I think it's natural. Yeah. I don't think that, I don't think our history is as disposable as it feels with the internet culture and the speed that it goes and that we're not losing, you know, Elvis and, uh, and the Beatles and Prince and everyone else that we've referenced in the show, just because we're also getting, you know, 900 songs by Diplo every, every 15 minutes. Like that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't spook me. Yeah. I mean, and I, I'd even push back. I mean, you know, like my daughter's 10 and like literally before we did this, she just got off a online violin lesson you know what i mean i don't i don't necessarily think that traditional instruments have gone away and but at the same time you know hip-hop is certainly the dominant music of today and that's i don't know like the older i get the less i'm just like it's not for me but you know some some stuff is not for me and that's fine you know kids have to find their own way and like they're using the tools available to them just the same way that that we were using tools available to us but i also think that there's like you know you know i I've seen some great young bands and, and, and awesome young rock bands with people in their young twenties and stuff like that. So I don't, I don't think it, I think it's easier to record in general. So there's probably like more bad music, but maybe there's more good music too. You know, when you were talking, sure. I mean, you were talking about, you know, we made records in the main dragon, there were samplers playing and there was, you know, violins playing back as samplers and also weird glitchy music noise things that Adam and Matt were making that I would have to like learn how to drum along to. Cause they were sort of confusing to listen to on headphones. But, the, you know, like I, I actually think that all those things coming together is where it's most interesting. Like I was not a big fan of dubstep when it sort of became like an emergence on the scene, but also like looking back, you know, it has its place in sort of a loud dance party vibe, but like it's not the top 30 tracks are not all Skrillex songs now, right? Like that came and went and we're back to hip hop and we're back to pop music. And like, I just think that it's, I think if you go and zoom in on any single amplitude of the curve of how much is digital versus how much is physical above sort of a flat X axis, like if you actually zoom out farther, it's, it's more of a trend line that flattens out to a, like, it's always going to balance out in the end, I think is the, the hope at least. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, and to be fair, Mexi did bring up the fact that like a little bit going hands off, the tools are there. The accessibility is yeah. beyond what anybody, what any previous generation could have imagined, even with, you know, like the home recording uh, explosions of, of like the late eighties and nineties, and like it's definitely whipped that in the ass yeah. and it's really hard to like justifiably rail against that. Just, I think indulging that feeling of, Oh, little whippersnappers thing is, is very enticing. I mean, I, I feel it sometimes and I'm 27, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I, I empathize, but I think we're all on the same page. Um, and John, there are a couple of questions that the community had for you about your time at harmonics sure. and let me know if you can answer any of these and we can edit them out in post, but uh, one after 909 brings up um, the Beatles rock band entry and uh, just wants to know generally what it was like to grab the rights to what they call one of the best games in history. Uh, it says that all the hard work that went into that game definitely paid off and it's a point of interest for them. Yeah, I mean, that that game was probably the f- I mean, so I worked at Harmonix since right after Guitar Hero Rocks, the 80s shipped. And I was like when I started working at Harmonix and Rock Band 1, I was like the PR coordinator because you know i couldn't be an assistant because i had a college degree that i just hired so they called me a coordinator um and they paid me you know nine dollars an hour um so (laughs) and it was great and i loved it and i I worked so much overtime that i made a good living um and i was chopping boxes down and putting them in other boxes and meeting people in the press and meeting you know matt and the game informer guys just being the person who could play drums and get through it but 
I think around Beatles rock bands, when I started uh, getting promoted inside the company and being more involved with product development, not like not game, not hardcore game development. We had an incredible team of designers and, and producers who were doing that, but you know, how do we package it? How do we work with MTV to get it? And so I wasn't on the first couple trips out. That was, you know, Alex Rogopoulos, who's our founder and Josh Randall, who was the, sort of the game lead uh, yeah. and some of the audio leads going to meet with, you know, Giles Martin and Danny Harrison and sort of the, the younger pod of the Beatles rock band, uh, sorry, of the Beatles, the Beatles extended family of, you know, of the surviving and non-surviving members. Um, and it seemed like it just clicked really well. So it wasn't hard to get the rights to the music once once they persuaded each one of sort of like the heads of the families right that this this was going to be a reverence <laughs> like the mob, mob it's a little like the mafia, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like it was going to be a reverent celebration of them and this is not meant to be i mean as much as it was going to expose a whole new audience to those songs and hopefully teach them about the history of the beatles and teach them about sort of the iconography in a way that you know and it was going to coincide with these remasters that they were putting out um it felt very serendipitous and and they all just seemed to get it right be it like olivia harrison or Yoko Ono or anyone like they all seem to understand why this was powerful as a moment and that we were not churning out a, you know, sort of like cookie cutter factory of we're going to stamp a band on this, um, no, on this, yeah. this game this year. And we, and we did have like games that were closer to that. Right. I think that like, this is probably the most loving treatment and also has the probably the richest catalog of anything yeah. we did, but like, you know, we did a green day game. We did an ACDC game. I actually think those were actually pretty w- lovingly created as well, but um, this was the one we dove into with the most heart and soul. And I think they felt that, vibe they felt that everyone was musicians and so getting them to sign on didn't seem uh, i mean it was stressful and i know that i watched you know alex and those guys go out on the road and and pitch it and and you know hope to land it and they finally did and it was just a really celebratory moment getting the rights kind of came with it because apple uh their record label had controlled all of it and they had gone through some sony atv negotiations to understand who won the masters and that was kind of all settled by the time we were coming in so it didn't seem like that was particularly challenging i think that the really challenging part was getting the stems for that audio um and there giles martin and the people at abbey road were crazy wizards and at one point i was on you know i was on a flight back with somebody who had like the briefcase handcuffed to them of the separated stems of the vocals plus the drums and you know these things all on separate channels so that when you miss a note we can mute just your instrument like these things had not all been mixed down in that way and so going in and, and actually touching those masters in the room they were recorded um was something that i know our audio team and the creative leads were uh, at the time we're like you know it was it was like you know seeing the face of god a little bit when you're someone who makes recorded music for a living to go into abbey road studio too and hear it played back to be recorded in isolation for just the bass part or just the you know the chorus uh of yeah. strings in in the end that 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 string stab you referenced earlier in the podcast of like that yeah, last yeah. note is like oh to hear that note in like crazy high fidelity with complete isolation is like oh oh wow okay i need to go like lie down for a little bit that's really overwhelming but you know the and, rights themselves, not that hard to answer the question directly. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. It, actually, I wanted to say one of my f- amazing memories in my life is I was at E3 and I was kicking it with Jeff Castaneda, who was at MTV Games. So I think assisted on that. Pro- yeah, Jeff's the best. He was at Rockstar before MTV Games. Now he's at Sam's, uh, yeah, Samsung. Samsung. Anyway, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was just like, oh yeah, hey Matt, this is Giles. And it's like, this is a super like, you know, stylish English guy with like a $5,000 suit on. And it's like, oh my God, this is like Giles Martin. And I'm just like a dump and like a hoodie you know like hey what's up man and like talking to him but yeah your dad's a good record producer (laughs) Uh, but he was super you know he's of course he's super like you know gracious and fun to talk to but um i think that also like didn't that coincide or either i don't know i I don't know i can't remember the timing but there was also then the like the remaster project of the beatles Mm -hmm. and the reissues which was like a huge deal because those records had never been 
you know, like when, when a new when a new format comes out, like CD. Of course, the Beatles are like the first thing that's put on. So like, yeah, for years those CD masters were horrible because they were done in like 1983 or something. So I don't know if it was was the Rock Band project like prior to that or kind of in conjunction with them. They probably dropped like... the same. They dropped the same holiday, right? So I mean, they okay. dropped it exactly the same time. And I think those those sort of lovingly redone mono mixes and and stereo remasters were done. That box that dropped the same year. I, I'm almost, I'm almost positive yeah, yeah, it dropped yeah. the same year too because we were like selling it on, you know, QVC at the same time or whatever. So, right I think they so were they were kind of like that. that was probably like a fortuitous thing for you guys because they were already probably digitizing and going back to the original masters and all that at that time. Yeah, and like you know, Abbey Road is a functioning studio that's recording things all the time, but they also have just really genius engineers, and I think that they were working on how to reverse engineer some things that have been summed down using sort of isolation technology and algorithmic tech and everything else that I'm too stupid to understand, but. Um, they were working on how to extract those things for the purposes of doing the project, you know, the love project with Cirque du Soleil, right? Doing this project with us. Like they wanted to have the ability to, to blend these things differently. At least that was my understanding. And, and I think yeah, that coincided with what we were looking for. Yeah. Cause I mean like Sergeant Pepper's like a four track record. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff is like all that stuff. Things get summed like, down pretty aggressively. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Nice. Uh, James Burkett wants to know. Whose idea was it to go uh, to start going beyond three song track packs and going for full album releases instead? Waiting to see what track packs were going to be released every week was the best thing to look forward to. And also, James is still sad that his multiple requests for pavement to be added to Rock Band never amounted to anything. Yeah, I don't know. Were you part of that process? Was I part of which process? The selection of songs or the not letting pavement in the game? <laughs> the uh the transition from song packs to full album releases. Uh yeah, I mean I was I was running the I was running the sort of PR and community group with Sean Baptiste at the time. Um, and we were, you know, we were a little downstream of the decisions that were being made, but we were in meetings with MTV when we would hear kind of what was being signed up for. And then it would go into the authoring team and they would start making it. We would test it and play around. And it was, uh, it was pretty great. But like we, I, I don't necessarily understand the question because we dropped full. I mean, okay, look, so this was like 2007, 2008. So like, Forgive me for it being 12 or 13 years later and my memory being, I think, very confident, but potentially wrong. Um, but I think the first thing we did was Screaming for Vengeance, which was, you know, pretty, I want to say it was like pretty soon after launch. Like it was like three or four months after we dropped Rock Band 1. So, I mean, I think that we were just waiting to queue up an album that like, you know, like Ziggy Stardust, we just played like an album that was just end to end good enough on every instrument that you'd want to play it as an album. And we started dropping, you know, a few of those here and there, but like that investment is dedicating, yeah. you know, a lot of people's time to one artist with one audience and the track packs and the sort of blended three songs a week or five songs a week. And, you know, we got up to dropping a lot of DLC. Sometimes we would have weeks where there were, you know, if it was an album week, there could be 20 tracks coming out in a certain week. And that was, you know, <laughs> we were sort of breaking DLC. Now you go into the Fortnite store and there's 80 new outfits every day. And it's like that, that was like, we were like mailing memory units to Microsoft for them to certify. Like it was very like, uh, but like ahead of its time to be that aggressive with the digital side of things. But um, yeah, no, it was, yeah, we put out the cars. I want to say the, the cars, the cars. And then we put out Doolittle from the pixies. And that was all in like the first six or seven months out of rock after rock band came out. So there wasn't a long gap when we weren't doing that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it has to be those iconic records that really, stand the test of time where you want to play them start to finish. You want to play every part of that song. Um, Cause otherwise, like, I don't want to say like you want to play the hits, but you know, in rock band, you are a cover band, right? You are not yeah. cosplaying like with the limited exception of things like green day rock band or, or ACDC rock band or the Beatles rock band. Like you are almost always like playing in a cover band with a mixed blended set. And so playing a record end to end is sort of not the f player fantasy. I don't think. Um, 
But, you know, sometimes yeah. there's records that are just that dense and they're that good that you are like, you know, screw it, actually. Let's put the whole thing out. I, I will also just, I'll chip in that, you know, Pavement's definitely like one of my favorite bands of all time, but like they, they were not a great live band. <laughs> I don't times. think that'd be that fun to play also. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could like you'd have to have parts for like Gary Young getting drunk and like just yeah. banging on a tambourine randomly while the other band tried to play and then Malcolm is like getting pissed off and stuff. So I don't know if they lent themselves. Their aesthetic might not have lent themselves very well to uh right. to rock band. For sure. Uh the more and more you talk about it, John, it's like you were in a very specific and interesting subset of like where music licensing was and then a very specific like niche version of of that part of the industry, right. To do it, to be doing it for video games and, and in that particular space, it's just like, I guess attacking it from every angle is, is really all, all you can do in retrospect. Yeah. I learned a lot about music licensing, uh, despite not having a background or degree in it. I mean, we were like an ASCAP, ASCAP BMI label, right? Like we were, like we released Mm -hmm. music and like everyone in our band had registered. So we would get songwriting credits if it was used on the radio or whatever. But the, um, but like, you know, most of the bands I played with didn't know anything about it. They didn't know what, you know, a mechanical license was or what master versus sync recordings were, uh, or hmm. rights were. And like, you know, I had to learn that stuff just to be able to be facile with the people that we were talking to every day, because you go pitch an artist and sometimes our music people would be there and they'd be explaining what we actually needed them to do. And we wouldn't be able to get this song because like someone literally like lost the tapes, right? Like they, those, those tapes don't exist. There's just a wave file. Now there's no longer any master recordings. And so it was fun to be at the vanguard of it. I also just was like, I, I have to constantly check so that no one, no one thinks I'm overstating it. Like I was sort of the, you know, reporter strapped to the front of the bus kind of person. Like I was not, you know, central to it. I wasn't the visionary behind any of it. I wasn't even doing most of the hard work, especially in those early days, but I was there and I was kind of witness to it. And, and weirdly because I was the guy who could talk fast enough and give a quick 10 minute demo of the game and play all the instruments and sing if I had to, to make sure people had a good time that like, I got to be in a lot of those rooms and that was a very privileged position that I don't think I deserve based on the work that I'd done up to that point. And I, I like to think that after that point, I, you know, went on to do more dev work and hopefully grew in the studio and earned that. But, um, you know, up front, I was just sort of like the dumb community team guys who would play with the American gladiators on the red carpet, you know, and the next day we'd be trying to make mm-hmm. sure that, you know, the guys from fallout boy had a good time and enjoyed playing their song in our game. Um, the worst version of that was me singing at South by Southwest and singing Paramore uh, misery business and having Haley come around the corner as I was, I was, it was her band and she was late. And so I was singing with the guys from Paramore playing rock band and I am a decent vocalist, but I am not like a four octave female vocalist in a pop punk <laughs> band. So I was straining and I turned, and I just caught her out of the corner of my eye with like bright orange hair and was like, great, just that's, I really like that band. And this is, um, it's not like embarrassing, but it's, you know, it's not ideal to fuck up someone's song directly in front of them. Was it even like a dramatic moment or did she just keep going? She was just like, no, no, you're good. And just like, kind of like, it was, it was clear, like a smirking, like crushing. You're not good at this. Yeah. Like as I sing a song about like, as I sing crush, crush, crush about like, you know, who I'm dating in high school or whatever the song is about. And it's just like, oh, oh, great. Like me, let me fight with this girl who's trying to ruin my relationship. And I'm like, this song does not fit me in any way, shape or form, but it's what they wanted to play. And I'm here to make sure everyone has a good time. So we're making it. Man, you're in the room where it happens. Oof, That's what matters. Oofa <laughs> Uh, ben Hansen, of course, head of MinMax, founder, the worst. Uh, wants to know. Yeah, the worst. Looking back on it, wants to know what was the most surreal moment during your run at Harmonix? No qualifiers on this question. 
totally open to you. Oh man, okay. I don't want to go on like a giant story tear and tell you like seven stories. Oh no, no, no. We can't. We can't work with that. Too much content always it's a problem. Awful. I will try to be concise, but I will. I will have to tell you two or three stories because there's like <laughs> the braggy name droppy ones, and there's like the really ridiculous ones. Um. So the braggy name droppy ones, right? Are obviously like we. I got to be in the band. I play guitar, which is not make any sense. But Alex, our co- our founder, plays drums, so he gets to play drums. When we revealed the Beatles rock band, and so we were backstage and i was also staffing interviews so i was like helping staff yoko ono as she was being interviewed about beatles rock band and like sir paul was there and ringo was there and like you know uh someone in the beatles uh team definitely tripped coming out of their trailer and fell on top of me i won't say who it was and knocked me down that was not fun um but we got to go on stage and play in front of the crowd at the e3 press conference for microsoft and you know like just making sure the guitars didn't time out because we played live and it was like exceptionally stressful and we rehearsed a lot and we came off stage and Sir Paul McCartney just deadpanned uh, the vocalist. I'm trying to remember who the three were. It was Patrick, who was our audio leads, uh, uh, Naoko, who was one of our game producers, and John Veneran, who was one of our, I think, also a game producer at the time. He used to be on the community team. And they were the three singers. So they were singing three-part harmony, and they did a great job. And they came off stage, and they scored, like, on expert, like, 98% on stage in front of people. The, the debut of surprise debut of this game, and the Beatles came out. It was a huge moment. And he, and he literally looked at them and was just like, 98%? really in front of us <laughs> and i thought naoko's heart was going to like drop out of her chest and he was like i'm just kidding like everything was so good you did great but it's like just to be in that moment and sort of be at the sort of zeitgeist of what that was um i didn't feel like i'd be i you know i don't think i'll ever have another moment like that we also got to play during that tour we got to do and i think about it like a tour because i was just doing like we'd wake up we'd go to a room and whether we were playing for three journalists or a crowd of teenagers at a you know rec center i don't know some of our gigs were very weird uh, we would just like explain the game, play three songs, invite them up and basically do live band karaoke for four hours uh, every day for a year and a half. Um, and it was a lot. And I was I'm still tired just thinking about it. But um, during that week, you know, we got to play on stage at Carnegie Hall when we were playing rock band. We got to play in Abbey Road Studio Two that year, um, playing rock band for a bunch of the Beatles and some of the journalists um, and just hearing those songs and singing those songs in that room. Of course, the most ridiculous example is we got to be on QVC. Um where we sold Beatles rock band on QVC. And what they don't tell you about QVC is that all those shows are live. So they told oh. us, Oh, we're going to do three shows and you're for, you know, you gotta be on set at 6 PM and you're going to play it. And then you'll head back to the hotel. It's like, great. That sounds great. So we, we do the show, we do the rehearsal and I'm doing talking points. And then literally Mark, one of the VJs from original MTV is doing the, the hosting. Uh, and they're like, okay, so the next show is at 3 AM. And I was like, right. So this will be re air and we'll be back tomorrow and we'll come pick the stuff up. And they're like, Oh no, you guys have to be back at two 45. And I was like, well, when's the third show? And they're like, like seven tomorrow. And I'm like, so are we playing like every six hours for the next <laughs> two days? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, what are we going to do for six hours in rural Pennsylvania in this just, warehouse that we were in? Just like um, the Beatles in Hamburg, man. You just It was not great. Uh, and so we did that. We also met Joan Rivers that night. She flew in to do her jewelry show and then fl- flew away. So that was a weird night. Um, those are some of the most surreal moments. We also had some funnier, dumber ones. So like we got to, you know, I got to play with conan o'brien during the writer's strike he uh, some of my friends worked on that show and he was like we just need content like i i will happily put your game on the air i just like i can't write any scripts down because of the writer's strike so please come to our set and they played sabotage and he sang sabotage's edith bunker um and i got to be a part of that we got to do a song for uh stephen colbert for the colbert rapport that i helped work on um for his song charlene so i got to hang out with him a little bit and that was really cool um one of the dumber quicker stories is i was backstage i want to say it was at the um oh man there are two more stories i'll, I'll be quick um the one was the uh european music awards I, I think it was or the european vmas and they had a giant 
set and they had, they're like, we're going to stage, you're going to play with Tokyo hotel and Tokyo hotel was one of these bands that like <laughs> MTV was pushing super hard. I remember we were they, like, yeah, yeah. They were like, they one of those like, super like crazy hair, like, yes, they look like a bands. Sonic the Hedgehog character became a human yeah, being. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. very, <laughs> um, and like they were fine musically, like they weren't bad, but they were there and like, they're going to, they were going to cut to them playing with you under the set. And so we were like under the risers playing with Tokyo hotel and Pete Wentz from fallout boy. And uh-huh, we finished uh-huh. playing. And I was like, and I had been like on a bunch of TV sets at this point, just doing that work. And Pete went, started like, was on his phone and started walking out into the aisle and they were pushing a giant piece of the set down the middle of the aisle. And I grabbed Pete Wentz by the collar and pulled him back under the set. And he just like avoided getting <laughs> run over by this giant piece of furniture. And I was like, and he was like, oh, wow, thanks, man. And then he just walked off and I was like, what am, what is my career that I've ended up here? Um, <laughs> I will do two quick ones for you. One is at the VMAs in Las Vegas. They staged the VMAs in Las Vegas at the Palms Hotel. Everything was in different suites. Uh, Lemmy played with uh, played Ace of Spades with the Foo Fighters of that show. We got to watch that. That was amazing. But we were in the rock band fantasy suite with Hayden Panettiere um, from Heroes at the time, the cheerleader from Heroes. And she was having a slumber party. And so we were setting things up. And obviously, we were not in the shot. We were just like setting things up. And Hayden Panettiere was there getting briefed by her manager. And this was like five in the afternoon. And I did what I did about 3,000 times throughout this era because all I did was break out these kits plug them into televisions that didn't want things plugged into them in hotels and then break them down and take them home. Right. So I'm setting this thing up and I stood up directly into a television for the 90th time in my life. Right. Like just cracked my head on a television. And this is the fantasy suite. It's all white, all white carpet, all white couches, girls in all white pajamas who are there to like have a slumber party with Hayden Penetier. And I stand up directly in, and there's a Butler in this room who's like staffing the room. And I stand up so hard that I see spots and I get really dizzy and I'm like woozy for a second. And I open my eyes and it finally comes into focus. And the butler has grabbed me by both my sh- shoulders as the girls are screaming. And the butler is shoving me backwards into the bathroom, uh, like <laughs> off the ground, like he's the secret service. Like I'm not touching the ground and throws me in the bathroom. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Ah, and I like, fell to the ground. And he's like, sorry, I hope you're okay. There's a small fountain of blood coming out of the top of your head. And I had like a little cartoon spout of blood. <laughs> like pulsing out of my head on this Jesus. bright white carpet. And he was like, I just couldn't have you <laughs> land on the carpet. Um, so that was a good one. I don't know, man. There's a lot of stories like that. The last, the last and short one, I'm sorry for rambling. I think there's a bunch of very dumb, funny stories. No, 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 no please no. Um, go on. The last one is I, so I, I once got a call from HR that was like, Hey, you just build us for like 130 hours in one week. And that's not physically possible. And I was like, ah, you were forgetting the international dateline, my friend. Um, so there was a night where we were in, <laughs> We had, we had announced Rock Band Japan and we were doing some development with Q Studios and that eventually got canceled. But we were out in Japan and they were like, hey, we're going to go meet with Q, talk about Rock Band Japan, what we're doing there. And then we're going to go, you're going to staff the Video Music Awards Japan. And then the next day, you're going to fly into Los Angeles where we're doing the movie awards, the MTV movie awards, red carpet that night. So you'll have a call. You have a couple hours off. And I was like, this seems like a very bad. Is there no one else who could do this? And I'm like, no, we got to have you do both. And I was like, okay, great. So I was doing, I did the red carpet at the Video Music Awards Japan, and we played with like Paris Hilton and an after party until like three in the morning, and she was, she didn't care, and all the dancers were for Beyonce were there or something, and like it was this whole crew of people, sorry, I think it was Rihanna, and it was a very weird like fun crew of people, but we played till like four in the morning, and then I went to the airport, and we like took some crazy midday flight that got in very late at night, and then we got delayed, and we landed super late. So I went to the Sheridan Universal where the, where the set was. I checked in and I was exhausted. I hadn't slept for like 30 hours. I couldn't sleep on the flight. I was all keyed up. So I c- collapsed in my room and was like, I slept for three hours and my call time went off to go load in. And so I hit the button to snooze my alarm and I opened the curtains, having been awake for 30 hours and sleeping for three. 
and it was the day that Universal Studios caught on fire. And so oh, wow, I opened I the curtain that. after being working for like four days straight and taking an international flight and everything in front of me was on fire. And I was just <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that seems right. That seems good. It's like the end of, <laughs> like end of Fight Club. Yes. And then we went downstairs and then we, that was the set where Sean and I played on, on set with two people. We played with the American Gladiators in their spandex. And that was very uncomfortable because they sat down to play drums and it did not <laughs> look right. Christ. Uh, and then we played with T-Pain, who I love. And T-Pain's yeah. the, T-Pain's the shit. He's the coolest dude. He's super nice. He loves video games sincerely. He has a great Twitch channel. Uh, if you're a Twitch person, follow T-Pain. Um, and T-Pain like knows how Rock Band works. And I was playing bass and he was playing guitar and he spent the entire time we were playing screaming at me that he was beating me, even though he knows that we're playing on the same team uh, and constantly <laughs> screaming, uh, you know, a common racial epithet that he would yell in his music at me. And I was like, <laughs> white dude from the Midwest, just try to play this video game and not get fired. He's also, to be clear, in an entirely red leather suit made out of zippers that look like a thriller jacket. And it was like, I have been awake for so many days in a row. I was in Japan <laughs> yesterday. The Jesus. whole earth smells like fire right now, and T Pain is screaming uh, epithets at me <laughs> on this small stage as a camera pans across us while like sweaty Brett Radner stumbles in the background. I was like, "What is Jesus. what is my job supposed to be now? I don't know what I'm supposed to do." So that's the last story I'll tell. But it was a uh, there's a lot of very surreal moments, man. Holy shit! That was all in like a span of four or five years. <laughs> Those are just some good anecdotes, man. Thank you. I got them queued up. Damn. All right, Jason. What are we? How are we gonna talk? <laughs> Yeah, yikes. I don't know. Uh, Kyle Hilliard wants to know if there were any songs that just skyrocketed in popularity right before a rock band launched that you just had to get in the game. And he compares it to like yeah. how Tony Hawk landed the 900 just weeks before Tony Hawk's Pro Skater launched. Was there any situations like that? I don't think so. Not for the disc, right? Like, cause we, cause since we had DLC, we like just would, it would be like lull worthy to be like, we're going to crunch the team to sneak mm-hmm. one more song on the disc. Like, absolutely not. We're an annualized franchise. Like, get the <laughs> fuck out of here. We'll just ship it on yeah. DLC later. Um, I know that Poker Face, specifically when it was covered by Eric Cartman from South Park and like became a very <laughs> weird meme for like a week, was like, yo, the guys at Comedy Central got us in touch with Trey and, and Trey and Matt, and they're going to send us the stems. We're going to release this in like nine days. And it was the week of GDC. And so it went from, we don't know if this is possible to, we're doing it. We have the stems. We're going to rush it and submit it overnight to have it out next week. And we revealed it on stage at a party at GDC and like, the outskirts of San Francisco where everyone had taken like a long cab and was just absolutely hammered. Uh, and we played poker face by, you know, Eric Cartman and people had a, a small meltdown. That was also the, the gig where we had, I mean, we always had like really constrained budgets. Like we were a big company. We were owned by MTV as a big billion dollar game franchise. And like the community team was always like, could you do this event on like $3,000? And I'm like, I mean, we can, we shouldn't, but we will. So we would just take over rock clubs and just bring our own TVs and we'd, we'd buy them from Best Buy and return them the next day um, and just be like, oh, I, my boss didn't like them. So sorry, I'll pay the restocking fee. Um, and <laughs> we went and did that for this event. And it was like, I think the tab we had was $5,000. I said to the bar, when we hit $5,000, it was probably 340 people there. It was like, find me and we'll make a decision about if we keep it open, if we go to a cash bar. And it was $5,000 and it was like two hours before the end of the night. And I was like, well... I was told not to go over $5,000. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't. And Alex was there. Our CEO was there. And he was he was not sober. Um, he had had some Maker's Mark, I believe, was his drink of choice at the time. And he came up to me and he said, if you close the bar, you're fired. And I said, okay. So we left the tab <laughs> open. So my credit card, my corporate card, and I had a charge for $12,000 on it. Jesus Christ. Um, and we need, it needed an itemized receipt because we were charging it as food and beverage. And so they printed out the receipt and it was like, 
the entire receipt roll rolled up around it. So it was like, I think we stretched across the entire <laughs> club and it was like 45 <laughs> feet long or something for all these itemized drinks that have been bought over the course of six hours so that people could hear Eric Cartman's poker face turned on a tight dime, Kyle. So that's the, that's the best answer I have for you for an Man. urgent turn that we got done. I don't think we can top these. Uh, I don't think we can top these stories, man. Yeah, I, I really you. don't. Now, we're working for a multinational entertainment corporation while the world burns you got to be pretty bored by now right Com- by comparison <sighs> you know i mean my job is much more back office now than front office which is uh-huh. it's a different vibe um <laughs> still get to do a lot of cool stuff i get to work on you know star wars stuff i get to work on disney and pixar stuff and some 20th century fox stuff like i get to do i get to make cool games now and it's um we get to work with a lot of really good partners who i've known for a long time and i i really i love my job and i don't go out and, but i don't you know i'm not the face of the company the company has you know, uh, sort of a very famous mouse who's the face of the company. Um, yeah. Who? Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not familiar with his work. But the. Uh, but you know, back at the Harmox days, like I, you know, my my job description was like, hey, I'm basically just, I'm the front man. I'm like the safe, you know, safe, lovable front man who's going to curse a little bit and be, but still be approachable and who will make sure you know what the green button is, so you don't look stupid on stage. And I will sing literally any song you want. Like I will be your karaoke singer <laughs> for anything. I have no hesitation. I don't believe in. I don't believe in sort of uh, I have no shame and I don't believe in what's the what's the word I'm looking for embarrassment sort of guilty guilty pleasures I have no guilty dignity pleasures. there's okay. no guilt it's just pleasure uh, we just enjoy uh, ourselves uh, I think we can end yeah, on this following man. question from Tim Laro because there's it leaves a lot of room for you to get philosophical oh God. what what makes a good song excuse me what makes a song a good candidate to be in a rock band game that's a great question and you know I haven't I haven't worked there in uh a long time now almost like nine seven years nine years yeah i um, guess maybe it's more of a so, pest so i don't want to speak on their behalf i don't want to tell them how to do their jobs there there are people here there today still making dlc and cranking along and they are family by bloodline if not by uh sort of familiarity um and so i i wish them well and i want them to do be successful i mean i always think that the answer is to kind of harken back to where we started this conversation like some of it's the interplay right like Sean and I would talk. So Sean Baptiste was the the head of community. And I was the head of PR for a while. And we were sort of the two dopes that were on the road touring with, you know, the, the legendary Harmonix community team, right? Like Aaron Trites and Eric Pope and uh, Eric Chan and a bunch of other folks who were kind of on the road with us for a long time. And we would bring folks along with us and go out on the road and play. And I think that what we realized over time is two things. One, we could start playing songs without looking at the screen. Like, and I know we're not playing real instruments, but like we would just walk around stage playing, you know, Say It Ain't So while talking to each other because we played it literally hundreds of times at that point. Um, and, and I think what we realized more and more was fun for other people was it's not just that the parts are hard, right? You play through the fire and the flames and that's impressive. It's not just that you can play, you know, run to the hills uh, on expert and, and not miss a note. Although I did 99% that backstage at the Grammys and my, my drum pedal snapped in the last three bars <laughs> and I literally screamed and knocked the drums over and ran away because I was so angry. Um, <laughs> rock and roll, yeah, man. I was pretty mad. Uh, and then we met Daft Punk, but we were not allowed to take photos because they did not have their helmets on. Um, so huh. another weird name drop. Sorry, it's, it was came of the trade. But so I think the real thing that made <laughs> it fun was the interplay between stuff. It wasn't just the technique. It wasn't a great song, even. It wasn't that it was you know short or long. It was like the moments where you could all be in that we called them unison moments in the game. There were bonuses, but where you could look around and be playing a riff that you played just enough, and everyone could kind of nod at each other and be like, "Hell yeah!" Like we are making this music happen with these controllers. And that to me is like the sort of superpower rock band song. Yeah. I mean, there's there's great pop songs and country songs and metal songs, and I don't think it's a genre thing. I don't think it's a difficulty or technique thing. I think that it's you know like 
the easiest song in the game is sabotage on bass on easy because it's literally like just the green note you can play it with i could play it with one hand holding the high frets and strumming with my pinky while i was doing other things um so it's not the technique it's not the challenge i think it really is that synchronicity of looking around yeah. and seeing people and going hey we're we're actually in a band right now even though it's virtualized even though it's just mr plastic we are creating music in this moment and moments and songs that are repetitive enough to give you that moment without droning on like bang a gong which i would argue is too long to be a good rock band song yeah. um because i played it a lot it's like six minutes long uh is the <laughs> is like that's what i think really is makes it super powerful makes you feel badass and awesome and i think a lot of the beatles rock band songs just to the potency of that is like there are moments in almost every one of those songs where you look around going like we are singing harmonies together this dude's playing a drum fill just in time this bass line is bouncing and we are like we are making music and i think that's what sort of layers it up to being super powered yeah, I mean, I would say that you know the the songs that I really consider like iconic rock band songs aren't necessarily the chopsiest. Like, I would I would consider things like uh, "Lazy Eye" by Silver Sun Pickups. Oh God, that sounds great. Or like, or like that because I feel like that kind of made that band, and I feel like that band was one of the ones that really got a bump from from rock band with Silver Sun Pickups. Not that they weren't yeah. a popular band, but I feel like they were more much more popular after. And also like uh, "Reptilia" by The Strokes. Yep, I think was another great one. You know, I, so yeah, I think it's those kind of groove songs that really. Yeah, everyone's yeah. got an individual contribution that is like distinctly theirs. Like, oh, I know, I my, you know, my mom being like, I really like the bass line in this song. And she's never thought of a bass line before, but she could kind of hear it because she was playing it. Um, and those bands really popped out. And of course, like, there are also a bunch of great harmonics bands, right? People who were at the studio and who got to sneak a song in the game. And, uh, and, you know, we got to have some of that, like the Acrobrats and Vagiant and a bunch of other bands in that era. Um, and then, you know, and then rock band network came out. I actually got to be the project lead on parts of rock band network and, or the program lead. And, uh, you know, we put all of our records in there. I authored them all by hand with some help, but did most of it myself. And we yeah, went, I remember, we played a show I in Calgary on tour and there were like 300 people there. And it's like, why are all these people at our show? And they're like, oh, everyone here just really loves rock band. They've been playing your record. I'm like, what? And then we played a show in Milwaukee the next night and there were three people there. And it's like, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> well, can't win them all. No. How is that for an answer? Holy yeah. shit. Thank you so yeah. much, John. Uh, and thank you so much to all of our listeners and supporters. You can find us at patreon.com slash minmax, where you get to ask questions like this of great guests like John and give us songs to listen to. One of the things we'll like to do on the way, or way out is to uh, play a song that one of our supporters suggested. The song that we've chosen to play on the outro, as Matt's going to uh, give us the exunt, is 13th Century Metal by Brittany yes. Howard. That is suggested by James Burkett. I, I love that album. One of my favorites of last year. Go listen to it if you haven't. But I'll let uh, Matt give us the outro. John, number one, it was so nice to talk to you again. It's been a long time, and we really appreciate, you know, I know you're busy, and we do appreciate you taking time to do this. And it's been awesome, great stories, and, and, and your insight on music was great as well. So thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for letting me ramble and revisit some good records and some, some fun times. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you listening. As always, you can go support uh, the MinMax Patreon and, and everything that Ben and the guys are doing over there. Uh, so thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks.
You know what I'm saying? 